You can listen to us on the go. A very Merry Christmas. When the weather outside is frightful, the Hyundai Santa Fe is, what's the word? Delightful. Because it's got available H-Track all-wheel drive to make being out together better. Enter for your chance to win the newly redesigned Santa Fe, packed with all the jingle bells and whistles you need to go dashing through the snow together. To enter, visit Amazon.com slash Hyundai or scan the QR code on specially marked red and green Amazon boxes. No purchase necessary. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. At Discount Tire, you can shop online and get the same trusted advice you get from the stores. Then just book a time that's convenient for you. When you get to the store, you can stay safe with a new touchless experience. Discount Tire. Let's get you taken care of. The Benjamin Dixon Show is only possible with listener support. Go to www.discount.com. TheBenjaminDixonShow.com to register for our blog and join the Progressive Army. Good evening, everyone. What's hello? Hello. <laughs> Just kind of wanted to do another impromptu uh, podcast broadcast. So we have been working on i mean like really really working on some things and it's been specific to the the media correct you know the the different channels the facebook channel the youtube and all the places we uh stream and i like i said on the last stream jada and i are business partners Mm -hmm. and um i'm excited i am it's a lot of work a lot of work, <laughs> but I it think is. the ends justify the means. Fully believe in the vision, fully believe in us. So it's just grind now, have a little fun later. Mm. Grind now, have a little fun later. I want to address someone, writer, uh, writer in black, 76 said, man, I love you and your Twitter work, but my Lord, are you ever out of your league? <laughs> Look, I like I said, like I said on the last time she was here, I've always I've always punched up and and shot high um, and obviously outdid myself this time. So, well, you're welcome. Yes. All right. Anyway, back to the work. So we're working and um, some funny things happened this week or the last couple of weeks. <laughs> what? What? No. Not because, you know, what I'm talking about now mm-hmm. <laughs> over the last two weeks. It has been more, I think, about how we work together, Absolutely. how we think, mm-hmm. how we getting in sync, getting our yeah. thinking in sync, getting yeah. our, our MO in sync, getting our, our operating um, the ways, you know, you would think we've been married for 10 years, but being married and, and going to business together. and together yeah. is two different, totally different totally things. Totally different things. And I think, weirdly enough, us going into business together, because if you think about it, a year ago, I thought about this today, a year ago, we started the business mm-hmm. and we were working on that other project mm-hmm. and that project didn't go well. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but it was this month exactly. Oh. Yeah, it was it was December. The thing is, is like I think once we tried, once we started working together Mm -hmm. in business, and we actually found we liked each other more. I, I liked you. I, I always liked, liked you. me more. But I, because I always pull for you to be like, I've always seen you as this dynamo. This, you know, always pushed and push and push and push. Mm-hmm. And so when we were working together, I'm like, damn right, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Look at her over there conquering the world. Boom, 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 boom. So, so um, I don't know. I, I was like, I wanted to do that all the time, and now we literally are doing it all the time. We were working together. Well, I think it's, you know, for me, it was, how will this work? He is telling the truth. I will confirm that he's always been trying to partner with me in some form or fashion. Because I knew you would do. That's why I married you. (laughs) You see how he, okay. So, um, but with that, we were in two different worlds. So he, you know, he's in the political world and I was in the research uh, development approval world. And I was just like, well, how how can I offer anything <laughs> to your world and the creativity where I'm used to doing proposals and research and grants and things of that nature? Um, but oddly enough, the skill set that I've developed over the last 10 years or so has helped me to give the company, the structure mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. it needs, um, as well as his creativity. So, yes, because because creativity was never an issue. And and to be honest with you, the business side, the structure, what you're taking care of mm-hmm. has never been an issue for me, except for if I have to be both the talent and the business side, right? Mm-hmm. Like when I was legit out here by myself, we moved as slowly as we moved because I was both the talent and the business side, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I wasn't, you know, I was pulling all the levers by myself. Mm-hmm. And it was a quality product. I'm still proud of the work I've been doing over the last five years, mm-hmm. but it was a slow product. It mm-hmm. took a while, but now we're, you know, with you having the capacity to do the business side leaves me with the ability to expand the content side and expanding the content side. (laughs) We are doing shout out to Brian, who's on the channel now, Mm -hmm. Brian Lewis and shout out to Rebecca, Mm -hmm. who's on the channel. Now you Mm -hmm. all already knew about clickbaity. Mm -hmm. They've been hanging out with us on the channel, you know, kind of hanging loose. And then um, we got even more stuff coming up slowly, but surely, slowly, but surely um, we are evolving a platform to give voices to people who fight for liberation and, you're a critical role in it. You know, and I think it's it's good to, you know, to come back to you all and, and show some progress um, and connect the dots, if you will. Um, some things are still in the, the planning stages, but definitely we're connecting the dots from the last time we spoke of, oh, we're being partners. It's actually coming yeah. to fruition. Yeah. Yeah. We can, you know, we whole adults over here. And we manage to stay <laughs> and, and we're managing to stay married. <laughs> listen, listen, if you if if I'm ever invited again, my keyword is always listen, 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 listen. <laughs> we had a whole bunch of coming to Jesus moments. Yes. Come to Jesus moments. Yeah, they know. No, they know. They know about the come to Jesus because, moments. Because, I mean, you know, it's. <sighs> 
it's a difference when you're working with somebody that you are married to. Uh-huh. You can't go anywhere and they're always there. Um, that's one thing. And then we typically um, proceed differently. So for me, give me the, the key points. Mm-hmm. Give me the, what do you want? What are we doing? And for me, I need the rationale behind it. Like I need for me to understand something. I literally need to understand why you're asking in the context. Otherwise, I'm completely incapable of answering your question. What you're saying for you is like you need succinct answers. You need them like in an organized. Correct. Yeah. And we're two totally different people. Absolutely. And we learned that. I, I will go. I can, and, and she's learned how to interpret me like she yeah. she uh, Jada is the. Ben Whisperer. Ben Whisperer. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to call her the, my cipher. Like she's a person who can wrangle me in enough yeah. to get everything out of my head. And, and so what I've had to do in the past, can you imagine me doing this by myself where I got all that, all that stuff that's going on in my head that you've seen I'm over sure the last there were a couple of people in there. Uh, well, you know, there's, there's quite a few, there's quite a <laughs> few in there. And you, you, I mean, they're all good people though, right? They're, they're good people. Yeah, you, you know? know them all. So anyway, I digress. <laughs> 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 we tell it all our business now. <laughs> no, but for real, no, it was, um, can you imagine having to switch from that creative side that mm-hmm. you've seen to business side in like a mm-hmm. single in a, in in a single day even yeah cuz it's not that we can't do the business side it's that just ha- it's a left it's left a brain of, right brain and it's a lot of energy yeah so when you're that. you know doing all the things that you're doing creatively and you're giving your all and all of your energy you're tapped out by the time you come to the business side and that's understandable mm. um and in this process, I'm learning with the people that we're connecting with that not everybody has a me, mm-hmm. someone that can specifically just hone in on the business side, the structure side, mm-hmm. um, and allow a person like Ben to maintain the creative side. Right. Because it can be frustrating. And like he said, it can slow down the process because it's a one man show or one woman show. Mm-hmm. Um, or one non gender conforming individual show. There you go. And so, um, you know, it's really been beneficial for me, one, to see what, you know, as his wife, just to be transparent. You just, you never know what all it takes to do what he does, right? Oh, okay. Well, yeah. yeah, yeah. And now I'm getting a glimpse of what he does. And I have a newfound appreciation for what he do does. Do you now? I do. I didn't know that. I wouldn't have known that over the last couple of weeks because over the last couple of weeks, it has been a <laughs> referendum on everything that I have done wrong in this marriage. <laughs> all the high, not, no, all the big stuff. Yes. Not the little stuff. But it, you we, know, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't discuss dishes being left over. We discussed some big ticket items. Oh, absolutely. All, all of them. I I I, we are, I will neither confirm, confirm or deny. <laughs> you are trying to set me up. No, there may be some in the future, and we will tackle those when they come. But we needed to hit those high level things yeah. so that you could have the confidence that you needed to yeah. execute, right? Absolutely. And you have that confidence now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Cool. a lot of testing options out there, but no one has processed more COVID-19 tests than Quest. 
with over 20 million to date. And now you can get the same tests hospitals use without a doctor visit. Simply order online, select from drive through or at-home options, and get the results sent securely to your phone or computer. It's experience and accuracy you can trust from Quest, the largest medical testing lab in the country. So order your test today at questcovid19.com. Some people make a single cup of coffee, others an entire pot. At Community Coffee, we make ours with a commitment. Because community isn't just our name, it's our mission. Find us at your grocery store or communitycoffee.com to learn more. Go to www.patreon.com forward slash the BPD show and get twice the content and unfiltered interviews without any of the commercial interruptions. Um, uh, a lot of folks in the chat room, y'all hit that like button, hit that share, like and subscribe. Um, 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 came on it uh, from Boston. Um, oh, hey, yeah. Keisha. Um, I also saw, <laughs> oh, Adrian wanted to know how long we've been married. We've been married 10 years, going on, going on 11, right? Tomorrow, technically. Oh. <laughs> so anyway, we, we have, it's not that I forgot the, the wedding anniversary, because yeah, I actually reminded her last week. Yeah. It, yeah. It's it, not the real, it's, it's the wedding we eloped, not the wedding where we had the, the big church. ceremony. Yeah, yeah correct. So. So we just we have the elope date on our calendar just as a friendly that, reminder. Exactly. That right. tends to slip our minds until it until it happens. pops up. Yeah. Right. Um, thank you to Sister Soul. Said hello, everyone. Blessing Brother Benjamin and you to you and your beautiful wife. Thank you. Um, Hi. Oh, you know what? It is. I guess it is. It's our anniversary tomorrow. Oh, uh, yeah. So which one do we count in the chat room? Do we count the um, do we count the elope anniversary or the big ceremony anniversary? Which one would you count? Like we 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 count both of them, but we only celebrate. Well, do I one. get a gift for both? <laughs> you know, you know. <laughs> I'm just saying. I mean, that is a factor <laughs> in the whole situation. We may can now. <laughs> You know, I don't ever miss a, I don't miss the opportunity to stunt. You know what I mean? <laughs> so anyway, um, the long and short of it is, is that over the last three weeks, we have been just really being each other's checks and balance mm-hmm. and um, having when you're trying to come to the right decision. If you're honest at all points, you're going to come to the right decision, mm-hmm. or at least you're going to come to the decision that you're most comfortable with to say, you know what, I'll stand by it. I'll risk it. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times when we have organizations and media companies and just movements, they're centered around one person. And that's how things get messed up because mm-hmm. you get hung up on that one person's ego and that one person's indecision or that one person's bad decision. Right. And they don't have someone to just be there to literally be their cross check, mm-hmm. their cross check to make sure that what they think is smart is actually smart. Correct. Basically, I always needed somebody to make sure that what I thought was actually smart was actually smart. And I think we kind of found that that kind of transparency yeah, this week so in leadership. You were asking me the question of whether I thought it, whether I thought it was best to have one leader versus Two or more. I think it really depends on the person or the people and whether or not they're willing to have those 
conversations and calling each other out on the floor saying, uh, I'm in my feelings today. This is what you did. Um, mm, mm. And vice versa. Mm. If that's not the case, maybe they're not fit for a, a two person situation. And, and with that said, if they're not, should they even be in business in general? You really want them there, right? Because exactly. they're, they're prone to be to crash your ship. I've known some people. So there's a story. There's a there's a methodology in airlines now. Um, and I'm going to somebody in the audience probably knows this way better. All I can do is give you the gist of it. I can't give you any specifics. But there was an air. There was a flight that was coming, I believe, out of Washington, D.C. that ended up crashing um, and it crashed into whatever that body of water is right there in D.C. It, it escapes me right now. Um, and they have the flight recording of it and in that flight recording um the co-pilot was not speaking up to warn the pilot with the same energy that his life like boy your life is on the line yeah why the hell are you not speaking up to the pilot and tell him he doesn't have enough thrust like they're not going fast enough mm-hmm. right he was mentioned he mentioned it he knew the problem he was like you know we got to go faster we're not going to get up but the captain wasn't listening to him and the mm-hmm. co pilot was not um asserting himself enough to save his own life mm-hmm. since then I'm sorry to get so passionate about that, but I have a fear of flying. <laughs> so I'm really passionate about the fact that somebody could be in a cockpit and the culture of leadership at the time mm-hmm. was not conducive to checks and just cross check. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you see that the pilot is flailing, step in and save everybody's yeah. life. Right. Yeah. And so the entire culture of piloting, according to this one documentary that I watched, now I think I, I could assert as if I know it. But apparently the, the culture of of uh, piloting has changed such where as they expect that the co-pilot has that kind, enough voice mm-hmm. to assert himself. And the mm-hmm. pilot understands to expect this from the co- like it is a more symbiotic relationship versus a hierarchical where mm-hmm. you can't speak up. And I think like if you take that example, like you could have the wrong person at the head of a company Absolutely. and crash it. Absolutely. Absolutely crash it. Yeah. Because they don't want to admit any wrong or any fault, and nor do they want anyone up under them to give them any sound advice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. And, and, and see, for me, it's funny because I've always said, like, if there's any job that I should never do, if you ever see me piloting a plane, call 911. Because <laughs> it's just not something I should do. Because I have these moments of tunnel vision where I can't see anything around me, but we're, you know, but tar- and then I have these other moments of like, huh, you know, I'm just like off in the, I'm off like three galaxies away. I just say in the universe, <laughs> you know, I'm off. And then it just hits me and I'm like, Oh my goodness, what was I doing? Mm-hmm. Boy, you've been flying a plane for the last 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but anyway, I digress. The whole point is, it's like when you have the cap- capacity to, lose sight of what has to happen mm-hmm. as a leader, you better have somebody there who can help you save Get the ship. It together. Right, right. Yeah. What do you think? I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Case of point, one focus to the point. This one? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So anyway, that's it. So we're not going to belabor it too long because me and my wife have this new hobby together. 
Really? That's what we're going to do? I, uh, I, um, I shift my state of mind and I watch Real Housewives of something, whatever with her. Yes. And because I have, you know, I prepared myself to enjoy it. Mm hmm. It'd be funny as hell to me now. It is. And and now I'm low-key regretting it because <laughs> I'm enjoying it too much. He's asking questions and, you know, why are they doing this and what's that? And you know, I'm like, that's like two seasons ago. I don't have time to catch you up on that. <laughs> but don't let him fool you. I watch. Well, I love Doctor Who. So mm, I do mm-hmm. love Doctor Who. But he'll have me watching all kind of sci-fi stuff, so I think it's only right. But you won't watch. watch. You won't watch Walking Dead with me. No. Okay. But I don't really watch Walking Dead anymore Mm-mm. after Rick. After whatever happened to Rick, it happened to Rick. So anything zombies, apocalypse. <laughs> mm, it's a little scary <laughs> to me. Just a little scary. Um, the next point is is that we're growing. The company is growing. The presence is growing. The people behind the scenes who are making things work. Uh, we we have dope professionals working with us. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I don't want to call out names because well they're probably not ready to get those kind of messages. Yeah. <laughs> so, but shout out y'all know who y'all are bringing yeah. those professional services in every category that we need. And really, we're going to show what can be done. With duct tape and ingenuity. Absolutely. It still amazes me that we are where we are. I mean, we have some way to go. We're not there yet. But just sitting here and using this time during the pandemic to put a Mm -hmm. full-fledged team Mm -hmm. together and to make sure that the infrastructure is there. We have the consultants that we need there that help us. Stay out of jail. Professional services. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, just stuff that you don't really think about as a part of putting... like. Well, and, and, and more specifically, stay out of jail So because me stay out of jail because they ain't had to beat nobody ass because they tried to get us. Well... Right? Because that's the number one thing. They've been, they're protecting us from others and protecting us from ourselves, and I think that's the entire point of them. Mm-hmm. But the thing about it is, is if you're a stubborn person who believes that you know it all, like me... <laughs> You can have the ability to not see the whole picture, which is why I was really glad to have um, Jada, who was more than happy. (laughs) She was more than happy to step in there and say, listen, oh, you want to know where you make some mistakes and how you can fix some things to make a good thriving business? Let me tell you all the ways you can fix some things. (laughs) But if you must, you must. But I was, what's funny to me is um, <laughs> we've had the conversation of how he refers to me <laughs> in in the business setting. And so whenever he hesitates, I know he's trying not to say my wife. <laughs> Can I just say, let's 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 let this be on the record forever from now through eternity to the end of time. This is Jada Dixon. Mm hmm. She just happens to be my wife. Mm-hmm. That did that successful. That and is. if I by any chance happen to call her my wife in a business setting, <laughs> y'all better know she's the boss, and I messed up. When the weather outside is frightful, the Hyundai Santa Fe is hmm, what's the word delightful. Because it's got available H-Track all-wheel drive to make being out together better. 
Enter for your chance to win the newly redesigned Santa Fe, packed with all the jingle bells and whistles you need to go dashing through the snow together. To enter, visit Amazon.com slash Hyundai or scan the QR code on specially marked red and green Amazon boxes. No purchase necessary. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. When the weather outside is frightful, the Hyundai Santa Fe is, what's the word, delightful. Because it's got available H-Track all-wheel drive to make being out together better. Enter for your chance to win the newly redesigned Santa Fe, packed with all the jingle bells and whistles you need to go dashing through the snow together. To enter, visit Amazon.com slash Hyundai or scan the QR code on specially marked red and green Amazon boxes. No purchase necessary. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Welcome back to The Benjamin Dixon Show. Visit us online at TheBenjaminDixonShow.com. And the reason why I stress that to him, um, just being a woman in the workplace. I said, you are her husband. I, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but a woman in the workplace, you know, we kind of fight different battles. And unfortunately, sometimes when you are married to someone such as Ben Dixon, you can't you could get lost in the translation. So nobody. You're somebody. You got six hundred and forty two people because I'm watching us randomly. (laughs) And thank you. I genuinely thank you for (laughs) listening to all our marriage stuff. I love this one. Behind um, every great woman stands a great man. Hey, I like that. Now, I, I that it's cool. I, I, I think it's I think it's appropriate, and I think it is um, truth and reconciliation. There needs to be some recompense for all the years that was said incorrectly. But after we get through that, I would like for us to change it to beside every yeah. great individual yeah. should be another individual. <laughs> right, going to make it as neutral as we can. Yes. Right. There you go. You were talking. No, no, no. That was it. It was just, you know, I just want to make sure anyone that I come in contact <laughs> <ahead>. with. Okay. Uh, <laughs> he is really checking his You're wine. not going to have this problem tomorrow. I just didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know before I started the stream. We are not that duct tape of a of an operation. You see how glorious this is? It's a beautifully framed I just want you to know that this mic cable will be fixed be- before I go to bed tonight. We're professionals, guys. <laughs> Go ahead. No, no, no. I mean, that's it. You know, you just want to be referred to as your own individual. That's yeah. all. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and truth be told, I legit can I can admit two things. One of the number one reasons I married you in the first place because I was like, oh, wait a minute. Oh, if we collabed on something, we gonna kill it. Mm-hmm. I saw that in an instant. I saw that the night I met you. Um, and then the other reason is, it's like after years of building, 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 and then seeing clearly where my shortcoming is, I was like, well, I'm sure I'm glad I married this girl who worked at Harvard University. And not that Harvard University itself is because you had that work ethic before you got there. You had yeah. that intellect before you got there. But mm-hmm. it sure is a nice shorthand to say you worked at Harvard. So get up off us. Uh, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> he loves that. No, but um, yeah, I've just had the opportunity to do the same thing for over you know close to 10 years or so on and off depending on where my kids were born um 
And it's just a skill set that I realized that is transferable to what we do now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that the business side, the the some may say the mundane side of any business. You had fun is, with that today. Yeah, I was I was excited about an organizational chart. Yeah. Like I was <laughs> like, yes, I get to put this there and that, you know, it was it's a beautiful thing to me. Um Meanwhile, he's over there creating and living in the universe, and <laughs> and that's our roles, and we're good with that. Yeah, um, I'm not trying to come over his lane anytime soon. Well, I mean, but you got the voice for it too, and 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 that's the other thing. Like, we both have similar skills that we are not known for. Mm-hmm. You're not known for your speaking skills, but you got them mm-hmm. right. You're not known for your. Um, your voice, but you got one, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not known for my business sense, but as you can see from this week dealing with me, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? I could put a business together like like that, but what I cannot do is be both business and talent. I just, I just can't. It's just my, I have to, it's a hard shift. Mm-hmm. Imagine stopping a freight train and then turning that thing around and moving it back another direction. Yeah. Like that's what it's like for me to shift from being the creative to the business side. So that's why we're here together. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. I'm going to try to go back up and get all these uh, super chats that I missed as I was finagling this microphone. <laughs> thank you, Mina Rob, for that super chat. Um, thank you also to... Um, <laughs> He says, you move your mic too much and get unplugged. Yeah, I do. I always move my microphone and I'm never, I, I'm never, um, I always keep backup micro cables because of how bad I move microphones. You always got to keep backup mic cables. So <laughs> I got a closet in the garage. I get them. Yes. Um, super chat saying happy anniversary. Thank it's you. A, and, oh, we got somebody here with us. Oh, now y'all see his little mohawk. This is the, this is the, uh, this <laughs> is the pandemic. Him. This is the pandemic mohawk. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, any last thoughts you want to share before we go? Because we got to go see uh, what's going on with uh, Candace and uh, Monique. Monique, Real Housewives yeah. of Potomac. Because I'm telling you, there is a show in it. Nobody believes me. Nobody think it's good. But I promise you, there is a there is a deep philosophy of truth in every single one of those episodes. And he finds it every find episode. It. And, and I'm just like, can I just watch? Nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Because you took over my TV <laughs> and I can't watch anything in my room except housewife stuff because then it's time for me to go to bed. So you know what? I'm going to shift my way of thinking <laughs> and I'm going to watch it with you. So if you could see his son is following in the footsteps of his father. <laughs> oh, Vanessa's here also. Hey, okay. Vanessa. Uh, thank you, Nick, for the super chat. Uh, she said, happy anniversary. Y'all are beautiful. A couple and, and that baby. Yeah, beautiful couple and that baby, too. It's not yours. No. They love that lip color. A couple people oh, have said something you. about that lip color. <laughs> and yes, Adrian, he always mimics me. So now I have to watch every. Oh. See, messing with the mic like his dad. Mess with the mic. And that's probably why it's broken because he was messing with it at Patreon Party. Yes. I'm going to find a way to blame somebody else. I just need one of them to get tall enough to blame on reaching the cookies on top of the That'll cookie probably jar. That'll be our oldest one. Yeah. He's so as soon as he gets tall enough, he get to, and it's not that much further because y'all know how short I am. Anyway, everybody, that's it. Let's get these kids to bed. All righty. All right. We'll see you next time. Take care, everybody. Bye. <laughs> no, nothing.
Bye, Mommy. The Benjamin Dixon Show is only possible with listener support. Go to www.patreon.com forward slash the BPD show and support the Benjamin Dixon show. If you like this episode, be sure to share like and subscribe. When the weather outside is frightful, the Hyundai Santa Fe is What's the word? Delightful. Because it's got available H-Track all-wheel drive to make being out together better. Enter for your chance to win the newly redesigned Santa Fe, packed with all the jingle bells and whistles you need to go dashing through the snow together. To enter, visit Amazon.com slash Hyundai or scan the QR code on specially marked red and green Amazon boxes. No purchase necessary. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. There are a lot of testing options out there. But no one has processed more COVID-19 tests than Quest, with over 20 million to date. And now you can get the same tests hospitals use without a doctor visit. Simply order online, select from drive through or at-home options, and get the results sent securely to your phone or computer. It's experience and accuracy you can trust from Quest, the largest medical testing lab in the country. So order your test today at questcovid19.com. Click, pay, and download instantly. I want you to imagine getting a brand new job, a job that you've sort of worked for your entire life. And within two weeks after getting that job, you just know, you just know that this is not for you. That's exactly what happened to our special guest today, Kristen Addis, who had worked so hard to get a really amazing corporate job and just knew right away that this was not gonna be what was meant for her for the rest of her life. But here's the thing, she stayed with that job, not just for another few months or even just another year, but years. And then finally, she was able to break out of that and to create something amazing. And on a whim, traveled somewhere, did some really amazing things, discovered herself, her niche, and brought a lot of people on on the ride. And today she's gonna bring us on her ride with exactly how this all went down, what was going through her mind, and how she was able to build a business online to help others follow her journey. She helps women travel solo. And it'll be really interesting to have you find out exactly how this happened. And with her brand at BeMyTravelMuse.com, and that's BeMyTravelMuse.com. She's built this incredible brand with literally hundreds of thousands of people coming to her website every single month. And then COVID happened. The pandemic hit. And of course, what happens during the pandemic? Well, not travel. And so her website, her brand took a hit. Her brand deals, gone. Now, she's not one who is new at fighting adversity. So she was able to pivot create something new, and I imagine that things are gonna go even better. So that's the story in a nutshell, but we're here to unpack all that and more today with Kristen Addis from BeMyTravelMuse.com. 
Welcome in. Stick around. This will be an amazing one. Here we go. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host, if he could have only one type of coffee for the rest of his life, it would be from Australia, Pat Flynn. You know, it takes a lot of tenacity, a lot of grit to keep a small business going. And every little bit of support from the community helps, especially with regards to what has happened this past year, of course. But you know what's really cool? When we start to see larger companies, larger sort of corporations actually start to help small businesses out, right? And what's really cool is PayPal. Yes, PayPal is stepping up and they're offering the chance for us to win up to $10,000 in a sweepstakes with 2,020 prizes which is pretty dope. So they're helping us out, helping us finish the year strong with a smile, with a chance to win 10K. So it's all involving PayPal QR codes. Did you know that PayPal QR codes can allow you to accept payments without handling cash or cards so you can remain safe during these times, especially if you have physical products, you're out there, you're selling it, maybe you're going door to door, maybe you're selling at a swap meet, doesn't matter. Pull up your PayPal QR code, you can get it in the app, You can get it scanned by your customer and your payment will appear right into your account right there. And there are no PayPal seller transaction fees through the end of the year. So now is the perfect time to try it out. So there's no fees. Other fees may apply, but not for PayPal right here. Take a touch-free payment over five bucks between November 8th and December 12th. And that's how you'll automatically be entered for the chance to win one of the 2,020 prizes. There are 10 chances to win $10,000 and hundreds of winners will get a $500 prize each week. Just download the app, generate your unique QR code to take payments, and use your code to take a payment over $5 to be automatically entered. Start using the QR codes to accept payments for a chance to win up to $10,000. Get started at paypal.com slash SPI, or just download the app. That's paypal.com slash SPI. No purchase necessary. This ends December 12th, 2020, subject to official rules. So I don't know who needs to hear this right now, but here you go. You deserve to feel better than you do today. And you can with Headspace. Headspace is a meditation practice, an app, an opportunity. I use it, it helps me daily. So Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy to use app. So check out, they have this thing called The Wake Up. It's a daily original content intended to inspire your day from the moment you wake up. They have some stuff for when you're gonna be lying down, when you're falling asleep. Whatever the situation might be, Maybe you just need like an immediate pick-me-up, right? So Headspace has a three-minute, what's called an SOS meditation for you. Maybe you wanna do this with your kids. Maybe you wanna do it with your spouse. Or you can just be by yourself like me in my office before I start my work, right? This is your approach to mindfulness and it can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus. Just, it's awesome. And you've probably heard of Headspace and even if you haven't, you gotta check it out. It makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule anytime, anywhere, just through your app. 30 days of Headspace lowers stress by 32% and just four sessions can reduce burnout by 14%. You can't argue with those numbers and this is all clinically proven, by the way. So you deserve to feel happier and Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash SPI. That's headspace.com slash SPI for a free one month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash SPI today. Wow, are we really halfway to 500 now? Well, that would be 250. We're halfway between 400 and 500, but still 450 
episodes later. Welcome to session 450. My name is Pat Flynn here to help you make more money, save more time, and help more people too, and inspire you with today's story and advice coming from Kristen Addis from BeMyTravelMuse.com. We'll have all the links and all the things mentioned on our show notes page. I'll mention the link to that at the end, but let's not wait any longer. Here she is, Kristen Addis. Kristen, welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. I am so excited to be here. I'm thrilled that you're here because you've had some amazing things happen over the past year, despite the pandemic and having been hit very hard because of that. And I want to definitely go into that more and, and sort of what the plans are in the future, because you, more than many other people I've, I've met, have pivoted really, really well. But let's go back to how you first got started online. I'd love to learn more about Kristen and how you got to become an online personality and be my travel muse and all the things that's kind of started it. Sure. Well, backpacking for me was something I'd always wanted to do long term, but having a full time job in the States, I got about 10 days off per year. I'm sure that sounds familiar to a lot of people. (laughs) And it was just impossible to really go anywhere all that far, but I always wanted to travel so much. I uh, come from the mergers and acquisitions industry, which meant a lot of long hours and (laughs) just kind of questioning generally if what I was doing was good for the world and not feeling very connected to the job. Despite that, I did it for four years and I was so burnt out. I just decided, okay, I need a sabbatical. I need to stop doing this. So I am a very all or nothing type of person. (laughs) And so I decided I would quit my job and my lease, buy a one-way ticket to Bangkok, pack just a carry-on bag and see what happened. And eight years later, I'm still sort of on that journey, I guess you could say. That's incredible. Let's go back to when you were at your job still, because I've heard this story before from you. What was wrong with it? What was giving you those signs that it just wasn't really going to be the right thing for you? Well, to be totally honest with you, about my second week in, I started to sense that it really wasn't for me. And I stayed anyway, because this was in 2008. I was thrilled to even have a job, a full-time job. So just having that alone was putting me far and away ahead of most of my peers. And so I knew not to throw it away for that reason. Then I sort of had the golden handcuffs on because once you get a deal teed up in this industry, it can take almost a year to close. So it just never was the right time for me to leave, even though it didn't seem like I was really doing much to help anything other than rich people get richer. And believe it or not, it's a lot of cold calling this job. It's a lot of prospecting. So On the very positive side, I was talking to incredibly successful CEOs as a 22 to 26-year-old. But on the downside, it's all you're really doing in and out every single day of your life, getting tiny fractions of the money that you're bringing into the company. And it just didn't seem to me like a long-term prospect if I was going to have any kind of happiness or freedom. So two weeks in, you already kind of knew, but you still stayed for about four years, what was it finally that made you go, you know what, I'm, I'm over this, I need to do what I need to do? It was actually injuring my shoulder, needing a surgery, and how disagreeable <laughs> management was with me actually taking the time off that I needed to heal. And then actually being just in the, the recliner chair for a month, unable to really move or do anything for myself and yet feeling somewhat happier in that position than being in my cubicle. And that was a pretty clear sign that things were not good and that they needed to change. So you had a shoulder injury, went in for surgery and your boss was like, you got to come in soon and 
you're like, I can't. And he's like, no, you have to come in. That's kind of how it went down. It was more like I need this much time off. And I actually shaved two weeks off of what the doctor recommended. And my boss just being like, oh, you know, maybe we part ways and revisit in six weeks. And I was just oh, like, geez. what? <laughs> yeah, that's that's not healthy. And, no. uh, you know, the, it's interesting, the juxtaposition of sitting on that recliner doing nothing and still being happier than when you're at work. So that's a good sign. And I'm curious, like when you chose to leave and go to Bangkok, uh, why why Bangkok and what was going through your mind? I mean, literally a one-way ticket. That must be nerve-wracking, scary, but also exciting all, all in one. Yeah, you said it. I definitely spent a lot of time trying to come to this decision. It was not an easy decision. I agonized over it for almost a year before finally actually going. And I think that's such a, a common thing when you're making such a big life change am I going to make it through? Are things going to be okay? What if things go wrong? But I just realized, hey, nothing's a forever decision. I'm not going to let myself live in a cardboard box. I got this. And if I don't give it a try and see what happens, I'll always be living in that land of what ifs. What happened when you landed in Bangkok? I had the best trip ever. I mean, even better than I imagined it could be. I actually bought a ticket onward to Cambodia almost immediately. I took the 55 cent train. I did it local style. And I remember cycling around Angkor Wat with the group of new friends that I had met at the dorms that day and just thinking, how beautiful is life right now? I'm spending $10 a day. And that was the main motivation, by the way, of, of going to Southeast Asia. I had lived in Taiwan when I was 21. And so I already loved this part of the world. But knowing that my money could just take me farther there and that's what I recommend to a lot of people who are wanting to invest more in their businesses, actually, in a pre-COVID world. Living abroad in countries where your value is higher can be such a smart move. Did you know how to speak the language, the local language? I don't speak Thai. <laughs> I don't think most tourists there do. Of course, I always learn hello and thank you in the local language everywhere I go. But language is not such a big barrier when it comes down to it. When you have context and charades, <laughs> you can really get mm -hmm. by all right. What did you do to make money? I mean, you had quit your job and, and had left and I'm sure you had perhaps some sort of savings, but eventually there comes a point where you got to you gotta do something to generate some income. What, were, what was going through your head around that? Absolutely. When I quit that old job, I had a two month window where all I did was study other travel blogs. And that's what I decided I was going to do to try to make my income was start a travel blog. Back then, influencers did not exist. I mean, this was all of eight years ago. So the industry is just constantly changing. It's really crazy. And all I wanted was to maybe get some freelance writing gigs. I could use my blog as a resume. Maybe I could get a book deal. This was what was going through my head back then. And I look back on it and I'm, I sometimes wonder how I was so driven when I knew I was going into an industry that wasn't going to be all that well paid, but I just believed that it would work out. And that's always what I keep going back to is having to believe in the, the process and letting my only option be to work for myself. When you say you studied other blogs, what was that exactly? What Any other blogs you'd love to shout out to that maybe inspired you in, in the beginning? Definitely Nomadic Matt. I know you know Matt Kepnes. He has always been inspiring to me in terms of showing me that it could be affordable, that it's possible to actually go live abroad and not have a trust fund. And that was super motivating for me. A lot of the other ones 
aren't actually around anymore, but I would just stalk them basically on all of their social media. Twitter was the biggest thing back then. I would look at the comments that they were leaving on other blogs. I would really get down to the nitty gritty because a lot of people like to talk about what they're doing and they'll kind of give you (laughs) the keys to the kingdom if you just go deep into the archives and really follow the story. I still do that sometimes. And I know you teach others how to do this too. You also now have a coaching program helping other bloggers too, which you've done and and have inserted into your schedule this year because of of COVID to help others, which is really commendable and and, and that's awesome. I still wanna learn more about the beginning stages of your online journey. So when did the website start and what was your thought process behind? What were you gonna post on there? It was September 2012. It really started out as a diary. So I posted all of the experiences that I was having. And over time, I realized that I liked to do things that were a little bit different from other people. I wanted to find the way to do it that a local might do it. I wanted to have the most authentic experience possible. And so that led me on a lot of cargo ferries that led me to start hitchhiking, partially because I was running out of money, but partially for the adventure and to just keep going more remote and more rural in the places I was searching through. And that helped me get an audience that was passionate, not only because I was a woman traveling alone, but because I was doing things that from the outside, I think look like they would require a lot of bravery, yet I'm just a normal girl doing it. And I would tell people exactly how to replicate it and do the same exact thing. And as it became more helpful, more people subscribed. The The base grew a lot of word of mouth as well, helping to bring other people in. Ads became a possibility. So I've been monetizing my website with that. All of a sudden, Instagram became such a thing. And I was getting hired by tourism boards and brands to start promoting them on my channels for money. And so all of these things really added up. I released a couple of books. I started doing in-person tours. And everything was just growing, growing, growing. Until COVID. <laughs> Until COVID. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there for sure. But this is this is incredible. So over a number of years, monetizing, starting with ads, and then a number of other things, which you've just mentioned. I'm curious, when you started your blog, and you started sharing these things and building this audience, oftentimes, I hear bloggers, especially have one or two moments that are significant in that growth journey. Were there any standout moments after you started the blog quite early on, or when you started to gain momentum that were like, man, I just put you on the map? Or was it kind of slow and steady growth along the way? Absolutely. I can think of two big moments. One was when I was sitting in China in a very rural area, hoping that my internet would be strong enough to take a call with someone who was about to hire me for a freelance writing contract that was good for $600 per month guaranteed for a whole year. Now, I'm pretty good at traveling frugally. And I was really good at it. At that point, I'd been doing it for two years, only sleeping in shared dorm rooms. I'd been hitchhiking all through China at that point. And so I thought 600s, all I need to know that I can keep going here. I was really close to taking an interview for a job. And that was the ticket that I needed to say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going truly all in on this entrepreneurial journey. Now, prior to that, I'd pretty much gone through all of my savings. I went home and I sold my car. I had really... (laughs) Um, done all I could to survive this long. And it was a breaking point. And that was just a huge step up for me. And then the second was when I came out with Conquering Mountains, How to Solo Travel the World Fearlessly. It's an ebook that is still for sale. And it put me on the map as a solo female travel expert. This is my whole brand. This is my niche. 
And instead of just being another person talking about this, it made me the person who talked about this topic. Mm -hmm. And I got so many media mentions as a result of that. My story went viral. I got so many more followers basically overnight on my Instagram, got a lot more blog subscribers. And that was a big turning point too. And that happened the following year. At what point in your journey did you own that term? This is something that I think so many, I know I know you've coached others too, and finding like your thing, the thing that you could become known for is such a huge moment. And I'm curious, when did, did you always know when you started the blog that you're like, I'm gonna be the solo traveler helping other females do this? Or, or was it kind of something you discovered along the way? Absolutely did not know that this is going to become my niche. Didn't know that I would become so passionate about it either. It all started with me trying to become sort of an off the beaten path travel blogger, but then realizing over time, I'm, I'm a woman who travels alone and this is what people really connect with. And so I made that my brand and started to write a lot more specifically for women, come out with products and services for women around year two and a half. That's cool. I love that. I mean, this is something that I remember I specifically went through also. And it was about a year and a half to two years until I figured this out. But a lot of people started to gravitate toward me because I was just kind of a regular guy making it work and, and sharing my income reports. And of course, I had a family and that's kind of what it, what was important to me. It wasn't like everybody else who was doing business for the laptop lifestyle on the beach or mansions and Ferraris and whatever. And when I eventually was like, oh, that's what people like about me. Okay, let's let's like inject this everywhere now. And so I love how you figure this out and you 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 began to own it and then things start to to happen from there, which was really cool. When it comes to monetization, you had said ads and you still continue to run ads. Do you have any tips for anybody out there who maybe at that point or they're close to the point at which they're starting to get some traffic and and they're excited about monetization, but they're not quite ready to create products or anything like that? What has worked for you in terms of ads? Are these ads like Google AdSense or what, what exactly are you using to generate ad revenue? I'm curious. I am partnered with Mediavine. And there's a few different companies out there. Mediavine has a somewhat higher threshold that I think they recently doubled. And it would require that you have pretty decent traffic to get to that point. But it's not probably worth monetizing with ads really until you're there anyway, because it just has to do with the quantity of people reading your website. One big thing that I've noticed this year, though, that is a big revelation for me is that the U.S. traffic is worth more than any other country's traffic, more than double. And that is something I could have only known with everyone being stuck at home in the U.S. due to COVID. And I'm actually really thrilled to know this because now I have a very clear idea that most of my audience is indeed American. I always suspected it was American people who were in Thailand or South Africa or wherever reading about my advice. But now I know for sure that that's mostly who it is. And it's actually, even though my traffic has gone down, because obviously people aren't researching international travel at the same rate that they used to, my income is the same as this time last year. Wow, that's great. That's super cool. And you, you've also been hit a little bit from COVID because you used to go travel because a company would pay you to go there and what does that deal look like? And and how did that even get started? Did somebody reach out to you or did you reach out to somebody? And when you make a deal like that, I'm just curious to know what what is that like exactly? What do you have to do for them and you know what to expect? There are a lot of different ways that it can be structured. Sometimes they will bring a whole group of people out, which I learned a long time ago I don't like. <laughs> so what I do other is... Other bloggers, other influencers? 
Exactly. Other bloggers, influencers, sometimes traditional media as well. It's called a fam trip. I definitely prefer to do it on my own because then I can really customize everything to be my brand, exactly what I want to do. I work in as much freedom as I can, and I work with destinations and brands that are really going to trust me on that. The way that the opportunities work is nowadays it comes to me just directly into my email inbox, or maybe I meet them at a conference. And obviously those have in a large part drived up in 2020. But in 2019, I was honestly running myself ragged taking all of these opportunities on because it's it was my dream job getting to do my dream trip. I worked with Idaho, Montana, Tokyo, let's see, tourism board in Germany called Baden-Württemberg. It's a region that I love. So these were all projects that I was dying to do anyway, and now I'm getting paid for it. So I did, I think, a dozen within the span of one year, and I ran four Be My Travel Muse adventure trips. So I was constantly on the move. Sometimes I would have fewer than 24 hours at home between trips, and my circadian rhythm wow. was so off. It was, it was oh, too man. much of a good thing. But it's interesting. It was like, that was your dream, and now here you are, and it's become work for you. What would you tell yourself from before you started this journey, if you could, now that you know what you know, to help yourself, would you perhaps say no to more or what, what do you think you would do differently? It's so hard to even go there because I can't go back and change anything. But I am glad that I had the financial cushion because I do have employees. And so when my ad income went down to zero in March and April, to be able to have those cash reserves was super important. However, it was also in a way golden handcuffs because I had all of these other ideas and things that I wanted to try. But because I was constantly on the move, I had no time to do that. And right. in a way that trapped me because it was comfortable. It was fun, but it, it gets to a breaking point. Yeah, especially, I mean, when other companies are controlling and I would imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, but these deals require a certain amount of articles, a certain amount of pictures and things that, again, you lose and give up a little bit of control, similar to how I've understood traditional publishing of books versus self-publishing. It just, you lose a little bit of freedom and it doesn't become as, as fun anymore. Were you feeling sort of in that kind of way? Yeah, that's that's totally accurate, as well as losing a lot of sleep. The trips would be short. What if you don't have good weather for a couple of the days? My photography, for better or worse, I just am really a perfectionist with it. So I would sometimes get very stressed that I didn't have all the shots that I wanted or the weather didn't cooperate. And what are you going to do then? Right, right. And we're not done yet, but I want to have you share where people can go and learn more about your website, and also what's your Instagram so we can see these beautiful photos. BeMyTravelMuse.com. And I'm BeMyTravelMuse on all the things on Instagram and YouTube on BeMyTravelMuse as well. Perfect. Thank you. You've mentioned the keyword adventure several times and even having run your own adventure trips. And as somebody who completely understands the importance of community, I can only imagine that this has done so much for the community itself and for you as as the leader of this community. Tell me more about these adventure trips. What was the first one and, and what was that like to, in fact, meet people in your community and, and even travel with them? Incredibly rewarding. I didn't actually anticipate how much it would mean to people to be able to go on these trips together. The first one we did was the Inca Trail in Peru. I had no idea really how 
it was going to go. You have ideas in your head, of course. So I guess mm-hmm. no idea is not quite accurate. But <laughs> I had desires, but for it to take on such a beautiful life of its own was was wonderful. A lot of women have told me it's the first time that they've truly bonded with a group of other women. For a lot of them, it's their first time backpacking and they've come to me to learn. And I get to teach them so much and they teach me a lot in return. That's so amazing. And this is something that you, I mean, obviously with with COVID happening and pandemic, travel's been hit very hard. There's been less opportunity for you to do these uh, sponsorship type deals, which actually, now that we talked about it, it's kind of like a blessing in disguise. It's almost forced you to go, you know what? I know that this stuff is burning you out. Let's actually cut that off. <laughs> let's let's not have you go down that road and try to figure out something new and something different. And you've run another trip recently. I know that you literally just got back. Where, where did you guys go? And what, what was that like traveling with your community during the pandemic? I'm curious. First of all, incredibly stressful to decide whether to run it or not. Never in a million years did I expect it to become such a crazy moral dilemma because not only right. are you up against a pandemic, but... You have the people in the country that you're visiting who this is the one time of year that they make all their income. So this was to swim with humpback whales in French Polynesia. And otherwise, on the tiny island that we go to, there's no other income. Now, they mostly live off the land. They'll survive. They'll be okay. But they had tears in their eyes when we were all saying goodbye, just so thankful that we had come despite everything. And you can't hope for a more magical experience than swimming with a humpback whale. So I'm so glad that it worked out. We had a lot of hoops to jump through, a very Mm -hmm. specific type of test people had to get. But at the end of the day, those who made it had such a beautiful experience. That's really amazing. And and to to do that and, and live that dream, connect with your community, as well as get paid for that is really cool. I know you and I have had chats together about just whether or not this trip should continue to move forward because... There's responsibility for health and sickness reasons, but also, like you said, financially for the tourists, companies that that, that you're going to be working with. So way to take charge and, and, and make that work. And I'm sure there, there's going to be many more adventures. As the pandemic hit you, I know that definitely had a big, that, that was sort of a big eye opener for you in terms of, well, what are we going to do? What might happen? And you've had to almost do some soul searching to learn more about you know, where you want to go and what, what are you going to do? What happens if the travel industry doesn't come back and you're not able to do these trips and you can't go on these board of tourism deals anymore? Tell me a little bit about internally what's been going through your head during the pandemic to soul search and, and just and kind of almost not rediscover, but discover perhaps another side of you. Sure. So leading up to everything that happened, my business was better than it's ever been. It was on a great growth trajectory My website was getting over half a million unique visitors per month. I was turning away opportunities because I had so many coming to me. And I was not even that happy, though. That was the problem. (laughs) I, I was finding myself dissatisfied, kind of lost in the like treadmill of I'm not ever gonna be good enough. I can't get to the level that I want. I'm making six figures, I want seven. And it was probably the the hit over the head that I needed. I mean, I'm committed to working for myself. There is there is no plan B as far as that's concerned. So how am I going to survive this if I'm not giving myself an out in terms of of keeping the business going? I need to find a way to make it work in the COVID era. And as a travel blog, how am I going to do that? So I started to think about ways that I could still be of service 
because that's the key, right? <laughs> Being of service to people in the world that we're now in. I started free meditation so people could join me every day for meditation. I had a free Facebook group for women who wanted to start travel blogs. And so I gave a lot away for free at first, a lot of free coaching, a lot of free time that you could spend with me, just, just getting to know that side of me, the more spiritual side. And then I turned it into, okay, let's take the BMTM adventures virtual and let's add a spiritual component to that because I kind of wanted to do that anyway. Let's start an online coaching program, which I don't think I would have done it that way without COVID. But now that I'm doing the month-to-month coaching, I'm realizing it's the perfect format and I'm learning so much from it. And it's making me a much better entrepreneur as a result. So it's just been more along the lines of how can I still be of service right now when people don't need me for travel advice? I've noticed that your spirituality has sort of come across in your brand more and has that always been there? And it's just, this has been an opportunity to bring it out or is this, is this sort of like pivot for you? I almost feel like you've, you've found more of yourself during this time as a result of the slowdown and sort of thinking about what's important. Yeah, in a way that's true. And it's not a total pivot. I've definitely been putting more of the spirituality into my work. And anyone who's read me from day one knows that I've become more spiritual as I've traveled spending all this time in Buddhist countries and really connecting mm-hmm. with those beliefs. My first year that I was traveling, I decided to go do a 10-day silent meditation at a Buddhist monastery, and I wrote about that. And so I think as I've gone along in my journey, my blog has become more spiritual as a result. And a lot of the readers who I was worried I would alienate with that have actually shown me that they really like it. And I get way more personal messages now from people saying that they are so happy I'm talking about this topic. Wait, why were you why were you worried about injecting more of that into your brand? What were you afraid of? Oh, judgment, always judgment. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it it's it's more vulnerable. And the vulnerability, as I've been shown time and time again, is always the right direction to go in, but it's scary first every single time. Like I could just keep doing what's working and let that be, or I could keep trying to expand. And so I always choose the expansion, but it's not without its risk, right? Right. Uh, Of course, especially having built a very large brand online. I mean, I can imagine worry about reputation, worry about, you know, losing subscribers or, or those kinds of things. And, you know, typically the results that you've had are typical when you lean into who it is that you are and and bringing more of that to the surface. And it's just been really neat to see the progression of what has happened since you and I uh, first started working together. I know another thing that we were challenged together to do is focus more on community. For a while, it may have just seemed like Kristen posting her journey. And now it seems like there's a lot of togetherness within the audience with these communities that you've built, the adventures that you've been going on? How have you leaned more into community during this time? And and what has that done for you? For me, it's been more about just trying to be sort of a light in all of this uncertainty and fear. So Mm. I was doing very silly Instagram stories (laughs) during quarantine just to keep things light and help people have something to look at that wasn't going to be a downer or you know, remind them of the situation at hand, just doing a lot more online in terms of offering the meditation and then doing the online retreat sort of format and trying that and seeing if that might be something that people want and need right now. 
just trying to make more impact. And then as a result, having new income streams come out of that. What is something specific that has come out of more focus on on the community? Anything specific? Well, very selfishly, it's been very rewarding, actually, especially doing the virtual retreat. So we based it on the chakras and every day was a different chakra and practice to go with it. And this is a pretty big departure, honestly, from my travel blog. Yes, I talked about spirituality, but this was almost entirely spirituality based. And it was so hard for me when I was marketing it, as I talked to you about. At first, I didn't feel like enough people were interested or signing up. And then I wasn't focusing actually on those who did sign up though. And at the end of it, I couldn't help but feel just so much more powerful. Like I had really made an impact for people. And I've been to a lot of retreats as a participant. It's always super powerful for me, but to actually lead one was a whole nother beast altogether. And it felt amazing. So I just want to do more of those and to hopefully reach more people who just need that right now, who need the connection. I love how you mentioned shifting your focus from those who didn't buy to those who did. And even though it may be a smaller number of people because it's sort of new for people to hear about this side of you, as you said, it's probably one of the most rewarding things that that you've done. And now you can take this into your brand even further or create something separate or take these onto your adventures. There's just so many great things that have happened. And it just seems to be this pattern of, like growth for you always seems to happen when things are maybe a little bit uncomfortable or there's there's fear there. And like, what would you say about fear? I think a lot of people listening to this would be afraid to, to travel solo. They'd be afraid to start a blog. They'd be afraid to pivot from their brand. What's your relationship with fear now? Yeah, that's an interesting pattern that you uncovered there. <laughs> How can I stop having it be something that has to spark it, some some fearful thing that happens? But that is my pattern. So interesting that, that you found that as well. But I do think that some fear is healthy. And like I mentioned, those golden handcuffs earlier, I know a lot of people are dealing with that and the fear of putting yourself out there. And I don't think the scariest part is what will people think. I think the scariest part is what if no one looks? What if no one cares? What if no one reads it? And so there's not only the volatility of the world right now, but there's the vulnerability that you're putting out there. And personal brands are raw and vulnerable if they're going to really make an impact. So whenever fear comes up, I know I have to do it anyway. I have to conquer it. And that's just been true every step of the way. And it feels so good to be on the other side of it. And it never goes away. Right. No, I mean, I I can attest to that as well. And, And this is probably the part of the conversation where most people listening are you know, like, yep, that's me too. So is it the reward on the other end? Is it that good feeling that keeps you going despite the fear? It's that. It's knowing that my business employs multiple women who I want to keep invested and, Mm -hmm. you know, part of it too. It's also knowing that every single time it's a learning experience. So I just know now that you can't fail because you learn every single time. And a lot of things that I thought weren't a smashing success I look at it now years later and I realize what kind of groundwork I laid from that. Like my first course, of course, I wanted it to have like a $100,000 launch. And when it didn't, I was crestfallen. But I look back on it now and it has made good money over the years. I learned how to talk to the camera better. I did all of the editing myself. I got so much better at all of those skills. I learned how to market a course. And so now when I went back and I decided to do the coaching and the more of a membership, format. I had already laid all the groundwork. I knew exactly what to do. 
Yeah, and you have this beautiful YouTube channel as well. You'd mentioned these videos, so I'd recommend people check that out too. And of course, we'll have all the links in the show notes and whatnot, including a link to what I, I would love to talk about here as we close up, which is another thing that you came out with during the pandemic to explore something new, to bring more fear into the equation, but hopefully something amazing, again, coming out of this, um, if not already, having something like that happen. Tell us a little bit about this new project of yours, a side project, and sort of what inspired it. Yes, Wander Babe clothing. So this Wander is my babe. first, yes, my first physical product. You know, before I was doing everything pretty much in person, getting run ragged from it, deciding that I needed to move things more online. Post COVID, it's been okay, coaching. This is a, a really good way to, to fill the time and help other people. Online retreats. I've been laser focusing on my USA content again because of the ads being so much more valuable for that. And then the physical product, the the clothing line. I launched it in April, which felt like both the worst and the best possible time to be doing <laughs> such a thing. I do most of the designs myself. It's all very celestial. I've got Jupiter rising leggings, for example. I have some that are a photo of misty mountains. And so it's all sort of outdoorsy stuff you can wear, but with a huge personality and we work on making it as green as possible, making sure people who sew it are treated right, making sure it's better for the environment and donating a portion of it. So it's all about empowering women, which I feel like the fashion industry quite often does the opposite. And I wanted to do something different. That's so cool. And I mean, I know having launched my own physical product as well with my partner, Caleb, the SwitchPod, of course, I mean, this is no small task. This is a big thing and it requires investment. It requires learning new things. And what has been the best resource for you or what has helped you get to where you're at now with a launched product? In fact, uh, my wife and I purchased one of your leggings. I haven't personally tried it myself, but I hear it's very <laughs> comfortable. And again, that's at, is it wanderbabe.com? Wanderbabeclothing.com. Wanderbabeclothing.com, cool. What What helped you learn how to do all this? Like what, I mean, this is, again, I mean, I, I had just done it myself. It, it's hard. And, and what helped you along the way? Oh man, this is not for the faint of heart. That's for sure. <laughs> as, as you know, physical products have nowhere near the kind of margin that anything else I had launched does. Even tours, yes, there's very high investment involved in that, but you already know what the end result's going to be because you have an amount of people who have signed up. But with the clothing, I've had to learn a whole new side of marketing, but I like doing this. It's exciting. Definitely lots of imposter syndrome. The best resource for me has been YouTube though. I'm mm -hmm. learning all I can from a lot of different people doing everything from how to use Adobe Illustrator because I have all these designs in my head. How can I make them come to life? <laughs> to learning from dropshippers, how they're doing things and how they're marketing. And it's it's definitely been an uphill climb, but I'm starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel. We've done better than break even over the last three months. So I feel great about that. That's so cool. What's been the hardest part for you to get the word out there and, and market it? I am starting a new social media account with this one. So I would say the first thousand followers are by far the hardest. And I've forgotten what that's like now. So the first thousand dollars are the hardest to get as well. It's just getting up to that point where people have any trust in you and are actually going to want to buy from you. Having the word of mouth opportunity, it's a little bit stunted when people aren't hanging out as much. 
And so it definitely is just the the beginning stage that can be hard to get through. So revisiting that now, starting something totally new, I'm reminded of of how hard the first thousand followers are, the first thousand dollars, the first step of the way. And I do think it gets easier. That's cool. And congrats on getting break even. I mean, many companies don't even get there for a number of years, if if not ever. So con- congrats on that. How are, are, are you manufacturing these? Can you give us some insight on, on how you've been able to manage that part of the process? Because for SwitchPod, that was the hardest part of the process. I mean, there were several hard parts of the process, but, you know, having to work with factories and all that sort of stuff and quality control, et cetera. What's your secret? Absolutely. Right now, I am actually looking for a factory to work with directly because I would love to offer recycled plastic bottle leggings and and things like that. Right now, we're doing print on demand. So that is helpful in that I don't have to buy an inventory first. However, my margins are lower as a result of that. So Mm -hmm. it's pick and choose, give and take. I do order all of the samples first to make sure that things look good. When it's clothing, it's a whole bunch of things you're ordering. So it's a big upfront investment in that regard. And then I'm also doing influencer marketing. So I'm sending out things to people. And I have to say, it's really interesting being on this side because normally I'm on the other side. (laughs) So now I'm on both sides. Well, it kind of gives you a leg up because now you know what would work when somebody's reaching out to you. You can do the same thing to, to somebody else. Might you give us from your social media expert experience, like what does work to reach out to somebody to hopefully have them promote your brand? Just as much networking as you can possibly do. The people who have agreed to help me are travel blogger friends I've made over the years. And that's been huge. And another really interesting part of it is that it's absolutely not the person with the most followers that has inspired the most sales. It's actually far from it. It's really about the dedication of that audience. And I always knew that, but it is very interesting seeing that from a brand perspective now. Nice. That's super helpful. Thank you. Kristen, this has been amazing to hear the details of your journey and and and, and where you're at now. What advice would you give to finish off here? The person who has just started a blog or a podcast or a YouTube channel and they're slow to grow, they're feeling a little bit disheartened because things are taking longer than expected. What words of encouragement would you offer them at this time? I would say what you actually, some advice that you gave me previously, which is to celebrate those who are showing up to not focus on the lack, but to focus on the positive part. It's got to be more of an abundance mindset than a scarcity one. And when you're living from that place, you just have so much more opportunity to bring more people in. I mean, it really does work that way (laughs) that if you have the kind of vibe that is attracting the right people, they're going to tell the right people. And over time, you are going to grow. But it it takes patience in the beginning, a lot of staying power. I think the number one way that people become successful is they don't quit. Amen to that. And Kristen, we're glad you didn't quit. And we're thankful for you to be here today and looking forward to seeing what else you have to come up with. So where should people go to learn more and follow your journey? BeMyTravelMuse.com is my blog. You can reach out to me on there. You can find my coaching program if you're interested in that. And then if you want to follow along on the travel journey, that is also at BeMyTravelMuse on Instagram and YouTube. You're amazing, Kristen. Thank you so much for coming today. I appreciate you. Thank you. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Kristen Addis. Again, you can check her out at BeMyTravelMuse.com or also 
wanderbabeclothing.com. And I know, again, as I said during the interview, just I know what it's like to create a physical product now. It is not easy. And to have this be done on top of and to invest in it in the midst of this pandemic, I mean, this is this is when people are creating new opportunities for themselves. And when I got laid off in 2008, I could have, and I was very close to just doing nothing and waiting. But then I took action just like Kristen did, and she's building something great and amazing and taking things even further. So Kristen, congratulations. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much for inspiring us. And again, you can find her at bemytravelmuse, M-U-S-E, dot com. And we'll have all the links on the show notes page here on the website at smartpassiveincome.com slash session 450. One more time, smartpassiveincome.com slash session 450. And then again, think about it. When travel comes back, when when we all start traveling again, I mean, your site's gonna skyrocket and she'll be that much more ahead of the game. So congrats, Kristen. Thank you so much for listening, all of you, all the way through. I appreciate you. You could reach out to Kristen on social and on Instagram, of course, and through her website if you wanna reach her. She has been an amazing student in my accelerator program, which was over this past year. We just finished up this next round and she was a graduate of it just recently. And I have to say, Kristen, well done. Way to handle all the obstacles coming your way. And let's keep it up. You're doing amazing. To you listening, thank you so much. Please hit subscribe if you haven't already. We got a lot of great episodes as we close in the year here and another one coming at you next Wednesday. So make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss that. Thank you so much in advance for all the amazing reviews on Apple Podcasts. If you have yet to leave a review, please go ahead and leave one and hopefully I can see you on the YouTubes because as we close in on the end of the year, I know that we are approaching 365 days straight every morning on YouTube. If you haven't seen my morning show, The Income Stream yet, check it out. YouTube.com slash Pat Flynn. Every morning, anywhere between 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. Pacific, even on the weekends. I hope to see you there. Say hello to the community. We're all having fun there. Wish you can have fun with us too. YouTube.com slash Pat Flynn. Anyway, thanks so much. I appreciate you. Take care, and I'll see you in the next one. As always, Team Flynn for the win. Peace out. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income Podcast at www.smartpassiveincome.com. Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store. Hi, I'm John Morgan, and I'm bringing you my brand new podcast, Life and Law. Whether you know me as a lawyer, a businessman, or a social activist, one thing is certain. I've led an interesting life. Now I'm going to take you through some of the big wins and losses I've had along the way so that you might benefit from my experience. I'm giving you an inside look at my life, and you won't want to miss it. You can listen to Life and Law on iHeart or wherever you get your podcast. It's that time. Lock and load. The Michael Berry Show is on the air. 
hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Speaking for the Barry family, we did. Family, friends, food, fellowship. I am thankful for my many, many blessings. And I will tell you, I needed some time with family. I spend a lot of time with my wife and kids. But I needed some time with my extended family. I hadn't seen my mother and my father in too long. There there were members of my extended family that I haven't seen in too long. And the rush of endorphins at seeing family. It doesn't mean your family doesn't sometimes drive you crazy. Of course, I understand that. They're not perfect. But the memories, the connection that that provides, it's important. It's important to our emotional good health, which is a part of our overall good health. And why are we on this earth but to love and be loved? Right? What what else is important? And when you take that away, now you may say, well, it's a pandemic. It's a special time, Michael. It's a special time. More and more reports coming out now that are saying that the lockdowns don't work. More and more reports coming out that the masks don't work. You're going to hear some stories on this evening's program about governmental overreaction. And I hope you see in that the most frightening, horrifying abuse of power, power which is being stolen, not consented to. Government governs by the consent of the governed. And when the governed withdraws that consent, either peacefully at the ballot box or violently with the cartridge box, they will know it. When they don't believe that their elections are being conducted fairly, you are leaving people in a situation. That's not a threat. That is a historical analysis of humanity. It extends far beyond the American experience. In fact, the fact that I include a discussion of the will of the people as expressed through elections tells you that we have limited to less than 1% of historical regimes and civilizations because throughout most of history, the only opportunity the people had to express discontent to their leadership, whether they be a governor an emperor, a king, uh, a pope, was through violence. Elections should give the opportunity for better government, more representative government, and less need for violence because now there is an outlet. But what happens when those elections aren't fair? The Iraqi people had an opportunity to vote for Saddam Hussein. And if you didn't want to vote for Saddam Hussein, I suppose you could try to show up and vote against him, but it wouldn't be counted. We've seen regimes throughout history that wanted the mockery of 
of free and fair elections. And yet, Lil' Kim wins with 98 or 99% of the vote. And you wonder why not 100%? Well, we have to. We have to make it appear. We have to make it appear that it was fair. That will be a source of a continuing conversation as we proceed. But I want to spend a minute on lockdowns. You know, artists are typically reactors to societal norms. They challenge, they provoke. Van Morrison, who uh, for my generation was a guy that had some pretty good music over a long period of time. And Van Morrison has now come out with a song, Eric Clapton involved in a collaboration against lockdowns. It used to be the case that artists reacted to lockdowns, or sorry, used to be the case that artists reacted to societal norms that they found restrictive, that handcuffed them, that, that, that uh, oppressed or suppressed or repressed them. The left has become that authoritarian figure that they used to make Republican conservatives into. The stifling, repressive figure of conformity that said you couldn't expose your body in public, you couldn't do drugs, you couldn't engage in this behavior, you couldn't make films of this or that type. And somehow along the way, the left has become, through cancel culture and now through outright regulation and clampdowns, the left has become that which they used to decry. Think about that. The same lefties on the university campus who used to say that government is dragging us into war, they hated the very president who didn't take us to war. In his first term, President Trump did not engage us in a new war. That's why you didn't see pictures of him eating with the troops. He's bringing the troops back to the United States so they can eat with their families. The wartime presidencies of the last 40 years have been reflected in a, a surprise visit to the troops to bolster morale. But then the president comes home, and they go back in the field to die or be wounded, to drag their buddies off the field, to then come home at the end of their tours and reach out to the mothers and wives of their friends who didn't make it home and say, I'm sorry that your loved one didn't make it, wanted to tell you I was there with them for their last few breaths. Where's the credit for Donald Trump, the man who was going to cause World War III, that in four years of president, he's done just the opposite? He's been a man of peace. Even his greatest detractors will have to tell you he has been a president of peace. Now, there are many in the establishment because they're all paid in one way or another through think tanks or lobbying contracts for the armaments industry, there are those who would, would, would beat the war drum and would love to have Joe Biden back so that we can get back to war 
because it is so profitable. And they'll tell us that it's for our national security, that we're better off fighting them over there than fighting them here. And yet those same people will start a war over there and give half that community visas to come here, and that's how they'll be here on our streets after we've provoked them. Barry Brigade. Activate the Michael Berry Show. Working in a coal mine, going down, down, down. Working in a coal mine, about to step down. Working in a coal mine, going down, down, down. Working in a coal mine, about to slip down. Five o'clock in the morning, I'm already up and gone. Lord, I'm so tired. How long can this go on? Daddy, working in a coal mine. Remember this as Lee Dorsey's hit from 1966, but let's give credit where it's due. It was Alan Toussaint who wrote Working in a Coal Mine, as he did so many others. Returning to New Orleans from the U.S. Army, where he served from 63 to 65, he formed a production company called Sansu, also known as 2C, T-O-U for Toussaint, and C-S-E-A, 2C Productions, with his partner Marshall Seahorn. One of their big hits was Working in a Coal Mine, as well as Ride Your Pony, which Lee Dorsey also cut a year earlier. Now, those of you from my generation who were into that kind of music will remember that Devo cut this song in 1981. So, yes, you do know a Devo song other than Whip It and Whip It Good. I've never figured out exactly what they were talking about. I think it might be the soundtrack for a cooking show or the theme song for... Jeffrey Tubin's greatest hits. I'm not really sure. So when I tell you this story, a California church rebranded itself as Family Friendly Strip Club in order to remain open and point out the absurdity of the COVID restrictions in their state. You know, this really does point out how ridiculous this is. But it's worse than ridiculous. Because if you look carefully, it's the churches that are being closed. It's the schools and the children who are being harmed. It is the church and the worship the freedom of religion that is guaranteed in our very First Amendment. The amendment followed by the amendment that gives us the means by which we defend that amendment. Here is the pastor at the Godspeak K-12 
Calvary Church, Pastor Rob McCoy. Their pastor will remove his tie during the sermon, and therefore he will take off an article of clothing, making it a temporary strip club <laughs> so people will be able to go to church. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go away. By the way, um, Governor Huckabee said that he'd bail me out if I got arrested for that. So this, this is insane. Cannot America see the hypocrisy and the stupidity of all this? You're being lied to. And we are finished with your tyranny. And we are going to enjoy Thanksgiving. And we're going to worship God. Open your churches. Go back to church. Open businesses. Take off the mask. Amen. And by the way, you business owners, the brave business of the pizza cookery, 75 uh, Thousand Oaks Boulevard, that you go in there, you don't have to wear a mask. You frequent that place. Every business owner, start getting brave. Push back. Enough is enough. You got quiet on that. The only, the only restraints they place upon you are the ones you allow them to. They serve us. We don't serve them. This is insane. And they make rules that they themselves don't keep. Do we still have that clip? You want to show that? Don't worry. There's a message. I'm going to teach out of the Bible. I promise. I, I just, I had to comply by the governor's standard. We're, we had to be a strip club if we wanted to meet. So we had to... Take a look at this. These are businesses in our city that less than a year ago were vibrant and completely shuttered. If this isn't making you sick to your stomach and this isn't motivation enough to push back, people's livelihoods are being destroyed while we give a 12.5% raise to the health officer in this county while they devastate our businesses and our families and we have to push back. Look at this. It's a wasteland. You go to the lakes, there's three businesses remaining. A Thanksgiving treat was a 5-4 ruling by the Supreme Court in the case of the Roman Diocese of Brooklyn, New York versus Andrew Cuomo in the state of New York. And the question was, could Andrew Cuomo effectively shut down a church service, supposedly in the name of stopping the spread of coronavirus? Of course, he's allowed all sorts of rallies and protests in the name of St. George Floyd or Black Lives Matter or We Hate Trump or Antifa. But let's leave that aside. 
Does he have the authority? Does he have the authority? I will remind you that the First Amendment to the United States Constitution says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Now, if you're paying close attention, you'd say Andrew Cuomo's not Congress. You're right. But he also does not, in his capacity as governor, have the authority to shut down a church when there were easier, less restrictive means of achieving the same end. Very well stated in a concurrence with the majority opinion by Justice Gorsuch in a Thanksgiving present to us all, where the Supreme Court ruled 5-4 against Governor Cuomo and his restrictions on church services in New York. Justice Gorsuch writing, at the same time, the governor has chosen to impose no capacity restrictions on certain businesses he considers It's been a while since the McRib graced us with its presence nationwide. So, for some, that might mean you've never had the opportunity to experience its tender, juicy pork smothered in tangy barbecue sauce on a toasted hoagie bun. But now a trip to McDonald's can change all that. And you can see why we're calling this the most important sandwich of the year. The McRib is back. At participating McDonald's. No way. Taco Bell's Toasted Cheddar Chalupa is back. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? They, they toasted, toasted six-month-old aged cheddar right onto the shell of a chalupa. That's genius, no delicious, no both. And now it comes in a box with a crunchy taco, cinnamon twist, and a medium drink? Whoa. Oh, sorry, this is, this is my stop. Oh, uh, cool. We're all thinking it. The $5 Toasted Cheddar Chalupa box is back. Only at Taco Bell. At limited participating U.S. locations for a limited time only. Contact local store for prices, hours, and participation, which vary. Tax extra drinks excludes freezes. Essential. And it turns out the businesses the governor considers essential include hardware stores, acupuncturists, and liquor stores, bicycle repair shops, certain signage companies, accountants, lawyers, and insurance agents are all essential too. So at least according to the governor, it may be unsafe to go to church, but it's always fine to pick up another bottle of wine shop for a new bike, or spend the afternoon exploring your distal points and meridians. Who knew public health would be so, would so perfectly align with secular convenience? Who knew public health would so perfectly align with secular convenience? President Trump replaced three justices to the court. Whether he serves another term or not, that is an amazing legacy. We saw it here. Backing the blue and our vets, too. It's the Michael Berry Show. Name that song. Oh, I miss the harmonies. song has such a great history. I was born in 1970, 13 years after it was released. And I feel like I know this song inside and out. I feel like this song is a part of my life, and I'll tell you why. 
because it never died. Released in 1957 by Danny and the Juniors. If you remembered that, I'm impressed. It was written by Artie Singer, John Medora, and David White. An interesting note about this song. It reached number three. Well, first of all, it was one of the best-selling singles of 58. It hit number one on the R&B bestsellers list. It did very well on the pop chart. But it reached number three on the music vendor country charts. How about that? Who would have guessed that? I like my country like back in 1958. You you know, at the hop. (laughs) The song returned to prominence after it was performed by Sha Na Na at the 1969 Woodstock Festival. And some of you will remember if you've seen that classic American Graffiti from 1973 that it is featured there. It is noteworthy, music critics will tell you, because of its 12-bar blues, boogie-woogie piano, and the 50s progression. Did Jerry Lee Lewis ever redo At The Hop? This song just sounds like a song he would have done. Who did who did redo it? Well, Ramon will get us that information in just a moment. We have a crack staff on the other side of the glass, which really just consists of Ramon right now. No luck. Well, just like these South American dictators he adores, for Thanksgiving, Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York, had COVID checkpoints set up at bridges and crossings throughout the city in an effort to monitor the movement of residents. The mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, along with the governor, Andrew Cuomo, had law enforcement conduct spot checks on vehicle inhabitants in order to ensure they were following their travel restrictions. So think about this for a moment. Bill de Blasio, who hates cops. Andrew Cuomo, who hates cops. Remember those brutal cops that are out beating people? Remember the brutal cops that we needed to defund? Remember the chants of Antifa and and Black Lives Matter against these terrible, brutal cops? Now the same people saying that are sicking the cops on law-abiding American citizens, restricting our freedom of movement, restricting our peaceable assembly, restricting our freedom of expression and religion, inhibiting our ability to worship, destroying our ability for fellowship. It's a terrible thing. It's a truly terrible thing. A story out of Canada, but no less true here, about a woman who chose euthanasia. She effectively chose to kill herself, but to have a doctor involved because she didn't want the anguish of lockdown loneliness any longer. CTV News Canada tells the story of Nancy Russell, 
who was 90 years old and decided she didn't want to live anymore. She didn't like the loneliness. And I think to myself, how many people in America today did not gather with grandma or grandpa and grandma or grandpa won't make it till next Thanksgiving. How much anguish will there be of the children and grandchildren of our greatest generation and that that came after who did not see their loved one who will now pass and who will have passed alone? You know, these are folks that live for the whole, the whole year for that day when everybody comes and eats Mamaw's pie, Mamaw's casserole, Mamaw's dressing. This is the day they look forward to. They plan out the meal and the time. You know, old people love to be around young people. I've been told this throughout the course of my life, and I now realize as I'm getting older, I love when my sons have their friends over. I love the energy in the house. I love the laughter. It makes me happy, and I'm only 50. Loneliness is a terrible, terrible thing. It's a debilitating, awful, painful, emotionally painful thing. Hugs and kisses and comments and just presence, the presence of presence, being there. In the same room. Now you might say to yourself, yes, Michael, but we're in the middle of a pandemic. Is that what it is? 99.9% of people who contract this airborne virus will survive it. Almost all of them will contract it and never know it. The median age of death is 82.6. This is a cruel virus that attacks severely elderly people, and severely elderly people are typically more likely to have comorbidities. They're already in a state of terminal, a, a terminal condition in many cases. They're living out their last six months or their last year. That's just the nature of, of, of where we are. This is an airborne virus that for almost everyone else you could gather. And if old people say, I don't care about the risk, I want you here, who are we to say, no, you can't do that. This is for your own good. Die in loneliness. From Levitians to librarians, everyone listens the Michael Berry Show. If you said the Marcells, you are correct. So, the left, and frankly a lot of Republicans, because they lack a spine, are ready to call off any investigation into the election. Just make it go away. It reminds me of when the Snowden revelations came out. 
and we learned that our deep state was spying on us without our knowledge, without our approval, and actually without the approval of anyone. We still don't know how much they spy on us, and we certainly don't know who they are. So we don't know what they do with that information. I don't know. Let me be conspiratorial for a moment. Do they sell that information? Do they sell it to the Chinese? How would we know? Who is spying on the people spying on us? How do we know there is a system of checks and balances? We know that Carter Page was spied on by our FBI. We know that they used falsified documents to do so. We know that they told a FISA court that there was a reliable dossier upon which they made application and that they didn't actually believe that dossier. They just used it to make it appear that they did, that they had some foundation for doing this. So these discomforting bits of information for many people, I find, are better dealt with by simply ignoring them. Let's focus on daisies and peonies and roses and happy things. Or, I guess more realistically, um, where are the Kardashians going? And and, uh, what did Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez say? And what's she wearing? Oh, she's wearing that. And and who's dropped the latest album? And and what's the award show coming up? And and who's fighting with who? Because that's easier. It's it's bread and circuses. It's it's digestible. Well, that's that's the discomfort President Trump is causing by pushing for these investigations. The Arizona legislature today was conducting a hearing on election fraud. There is such fear among people in this country that we actually find out what the hell happened. That's why they're covering it up. There's no other reason. It looked like the observers were birding, not observing, in Pennsylvania when they were kept 100 feet away and were using binoculars. You know, many of them have said, They might be cheating. We don't know. We're 100 feet away. We have no idea what that ballot says. Well, they're telling us that Trump's being a sore loser, that that he's, he's not supposed to keep challenging these things. It's bad for democracy. MSNBC, as noted by Lee Fang on Twitter, in the aftermath of the last presidential election, ran segments for weeks in late November and even early December pushing a scheme whereby the Electoral College would ignore certified election results in order to block Donald Trump. This is that fat, blustering, blubbering fool Michael Moore and Chris Hayes, who's one of the hosts on MSNBC, basically suggesting that the will of the people should be overturned. Listen to this. 
I think there are people who are pushing very hard who think that um, because of some of the constitutional perils of the emoluments clause, uh, because of the popular vote margin, because of um, a fundamental, they think, threat to liberal democracy, that, 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 that electors should be persuaded and pressured on Monday to, to part with what their pledge is and vote, and vote against Donald Trump. Yes, they absolutely should do so? that. Absolutely. I've, I believe right now that there are electors. They only need 38 of them who have a conscience or who are worried about a man who won't attend the daily security briefings, who, uh, who we now know Russia was trying to help get elected. I mean, can you imagine if this is, if you or I had been running for office and they, they show that the Iranians were somehow involved in helping you or me get elected? What would happen to you or me, Chris? I'm just curious. What would happen? This I think is- it would be a totally chill situation. That is Michael Moore saying that the Russians helped Donald Trump get elected in order to delegitimize the results of that 2016 election. The left, from the moment the results started coming in, found every way possible to claim that Trump cheated. Well, if he cheated, tell us how he cheated. Was it Russian involvement? For two years, $50 million, the former FBI director, Robert Mueller, had a team of folks, a large team of folks, studying just that issue. And they couldn't prove it. But how are we supposed to believe that Trump cheated in 16, but the election was fair in 20? Trump cheated when he was an outsider and the Obama administration had their hand-picked candidate? And Trump was able to cheat without any of the machinery of the federal government? But as president with his appointees in place? This doesn't make any sense. If they're sore losers, they're sore losers. Then we can be sore losers too. An ounce of their own medicine. Because we, after two years of an investigation, will find cheating. There's nobody in America that doesn't believe that. Nobody who's who's actually thinking. We all know. We don't know how many votes they cheated by. You can have your own opinion and you can tell, oh, Michael, we know exactly. No, you know, but there's nobody in America who's actually watching what's going on who doesn't believe that there are some irregularities at a minimum. Even Democrats know this. Rasmus, Rasmussen re- released a, re- a report that said even 30 percent of Democrats believe that Biden's folk che- folks cheated. 30 percent of Democrats. Now, do they want the results overturned? No, because orange man bad. He must go away. We must have our guy. But we all know. We all know. Alexander Solzhenitsyn once wrote, We know they are lying. They know they are lying. He's talking about the Russian state. We know they are lying. They know they are lying. They know we know they are lying. We know they know we know they are lying. But they are still lying. And I would say, we know that they cheated. They know they cheated. They know we know they cheated. We know that they know that we know they cheated. And yet they still cheat. 
been a while since the McRib graced us with its presence nationwide. So, for some, that might mean you've never had the opportunity to experience its tender, juicy pork smothered in tangy barbecue sauce on a toasted hoagie bun. But now a trip to McDonald's can change all that. And you can see why we are calling this the most important sandwich of the year. The McRib is back. At participating McDonald's. No way. Taco Bell's Toasted Cheddar Chalupa is back. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? They, they toasted, toasted six-month-old aged cheddar right onto the shell of a chalupa. That's genius, no delicious, no both. And now it comes in a box with a crunchy taco, cinnamon twist, and a medium drink. Whoa. Oh, sorry, this is this is my stop. Oh, uh, cool. We're all thinking it. The $5 Toasted Cheddar Chalupa box is back. Only at Taco Bell. At limited participating U.S. locations for a limited time only. Contact local store for prices, hours, and participation with very tax extra drinks, excludes freezes. It's that time. Lock and load. The Michael Berry Show is on the air. New from Hallmark Television, it's a very COVID Christmas. Hello! Hello! Is anybody there? I've been social distancing for eight months. Santa, is that you? Oh, well. So don't miss a very COVID Christmas. Only on Hallmark. This holiday movie has been produced in accordance with California state pandemic lockdown guidelines. No grandmas were killed during the making of this film. CNBC reports Black Friday shopping in stores craters 52% during pandemic as e-commerce sales surge. Traffic at stores on Black Friday fell by 52.1% compared with last year. As Americans, by and large, eschewed heading to malls and queuing up in lines for shopping online, according to preliminary data from Sensormatic Solutions. Brian Field, a senior director of global retailing consulting, said, We knew Black Friday traffic was going to be down, just didn't know how much it was going to be down. Shoppers are spreading out their shopping throughout the holiday season because of concerns about social distancing and the pandemic. There were, Ramon tells me, national reporters standing out in front of retail shops and saying, there's no crowd this year. We don't know what's happened. People didn't show up here on Black Friday. Well, when you give them a steady diet, of COVID, 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 COVID. COVID's going to kill you. Don't go around people. COVID's going to kill you. Don't be around people. It turns out that some of them will follow your direction. So what will be the consequences? Well, in fairness, as I understand it, the retailers started their specials earlier to get ahead of each other sort of like playing Christmas music on the radio. One station always starts on December 1st, 
So the next year, a station starts a day earlier. The next year, that one leapfrogs backwards. It's like the old uh, uh, Price is Right trick. Somebody bids 500, you just bid 501. And if they were smart, you'd just go 500, 501, 502, 503, and there you go. If you were the last one up, you'd always win. You just go $1 above if you really wanted to play that way. But anyway, I don't want I want to give away all the gaming strategy for the price is right should I end up on the price is right, which by the way uh referral for you a little recommendation for you. There is a documentary about a guy who watched every price is right episode for 20 years. Have you seen this Ramon? He watched every episode. He logged the prices for items. This guy is a complete freak. Make no make no mistake. He logged every price and he memorized the prices. And so he came in and he did the showcase showdown and he nailed it correctly, which I think means he wins both of their entire showcase showdown deals. So then they thought maybe he had cheated. He hadn't cheated. He had just prepared. He had prepared on a level that they had never expected. And it wasn't like the show couldn't give it to him. But anyway, I digress. It's a good documentary. Just look up Price is Right, Freak Show Dude that that won. I can't remember. It's a documentary. I can't remember which station. So. But back to the point. The economic effects, the impact of what has happened. Well, first of all, brick and mortar just took just took one on the chin. Because if people are going to order everything online and not at the brick and mortar, the malls are going to die. The big retailers paid a lot of money to be at the mall because it wasn't just about being at the mall. It was being out in public, right? The mall was a place that whether it was hot as hell, which is what it is in Houston most of the time, or raining or freezing cold, other parts of the country, you could go into the mall and it felt nice. It was well lit. There were nice sounds. There were nice sights. You could get a cookie or some coffee. You could see ice skating. And it was a nice experience. And be, because the crowds were coming to them, then the stores, the, the, the retailers paid a lot of money because while you're there, you'd shop at their store. Well, now you're scared to death to go out in public. So you're ordering everything online. Well, that gives an advantage to companies that don't have brick-and-mortar stores. They don't have to pay retail. They don't have to pay the rent, and they don't have to staff people there. They don't have to clean it. They don't have to insure the space. They don't have to do all the tenant improvements. They don't have to hold on to inventory in each individual location. Now, some of these are just industry trends that this whole experience has accelerated. I think we were largely moving away from as much brick and mortar as we had and toward the convenience of online. But I don't think to the extent that we've witnessed. An average of 29.8% of small businesses across the country have now closed and will not reopen. But what's not being talked about is the great wealth shift that is occurring. Small business is being destroyed. Big business is thriving. 
Walmart and Amazon are going to have record years. Not just because you ordered things online, but because you had fewer choices of where to go. The local hardware store, the local bike shop, the local shoe store, the local boutique, all of the things that were owned by the Joneses and the Smiths and the Ramchandanis in the neighborhoods, all of that you're going to order online. And as you do, as you cast votes for those major corporations, you're not casting votes for the local business. So they die. So you drive down Main Street in your little town, and all the shops are gone. And it's only when all the shops are gone that you say, I miss being able to stop in and have a cup of coffee. I miss being able to stop in and say hello to Mr. Jones at the hardware store or Mr. Singh at the plumbing store or Miss Jones at the at the clothing boutique because they don't exist. So the very people who claim to care about the little guy are making policies that destroy the little guy. And when the PPP checks stop, that's when you're really going to see it. Because I know a lot of small business owners, a lot. And I know a lot of them tell me that they couldn't have survived without the PPP. They couldn't have survived. Their business couldn't have survived based on the business they got. And most of them were closed for a period of time. What we're doing is killing our communities. We're killing our small businesses. And we're killing our country. We better stop these lockdowns or the damage will be irreversible. With his finger on the pulse, the King of Ding continues on The Michael Berry Show. Tell me which woman sings this. It sounds like Karen Carpenter, but it's not. What's her name? It is not Ann Murray. It sure as hell sounds like her. It's actually Neil Sadaka. It's a dude. Tricked you. Matt Palumbo reports. Report finds Biden's campaign receives received six times more dark money than Trump's. Despite the fact that he spent the entire campaigning campaign criticizing dark money. More than $320 million in dark money. More than six times what Trump received. Wait a second. Wait a minute. I think they got the number wrong. I think it's, oh, that's for congressional seats as well. Okay, yeah, Biden took in $132 million in dark money. Trump took in $22 million. So there you have it. Yet another example of the hypocrisy. We have to decide that we can't play 
by the same rules of fairness by which we've always played. We cannot simply sit back and say, well, we're fine, upstanding people, and look at them. They're cheating. They cheat. We've got to know they cheat, and we've got to stop them before they cheat. Listen, the fix was in on this election long before the first ballot was cast. The minute COVID started, what did the Democrats do? Well, they started canceling primaries long before the man who was the alternative to Joe Biden was Donald Trump. The fix was in for Joe Biden. They started finding ways to make sure he would be the nominee. And the reason was he was less objectionable than the radical gay guy, the radical black woman who's half Indian, the radical light-skinned black guy from New Jersey, see, the, the socialist from Vermont, the socialist from Massachusetts. See, they knew. The establishment knew that they could pitch Joe Biden. If they could just keep him alive, they could pitch Joe Biden as a uniter. Today he comes out with a comment. We have to unite the country. You're the man who said Mitt Romney would put black people back in chains. You don't get to unite America because you think that will bolster your power. You know, I'll never forget Rush Limbaugh. We all owe Rush Limbaugh such a great debt of gratitude. Rush Limbaugh, in, on January 20th, 2009, as Obama was being coronated, to use Rush's term, or immaculated, as I believe he said at the time, everyone, including Republicans, was saying, well, I hope he succeeds. I hope he succeeds. I wish him the best. First black president. It'd be great if he's successful. And everyone was caught up in the goodwill toward this this good looking, well spoken. What did Joe Biden say? Is the first is it's a success story. Clean, articulate. I mean, gosh, Joe Biden said he's not even a prison inmate. He doesn't want to steal your stuff and he doesn't talk funny. Man, he's he's the real deal. As everyone was caught up in what the L.A. Times wrote a story, Barack the Magic Negro. In fact, Rush Limbaugh was criticized for for reading that story and for making a parody about it. But actually, they were just reading it word for word. That, that came from the L.A. Times. Barack the Magic Negro was a reference to the fact that Democrats were hoisting all their hopes on this black man who was superhuman. And part of it was the L.A. Times was mad because they wanted Hillary Clinton. You forget there were Hillary partisans in 2008 that were very powerful that didn't want Obama, not until he won the nomination, and then they were fine with him. You remember Jesse Jackson said he was going to, shall we say, emasculate him, said he was going to cut off his, he was heard saying into a live microphone, 
to that most noble statesman, Al Sharpton. Ah, yes. But I digress. I digress, and I can't even remember exactly where I was. Where was I in that story, Ramon? I started down that memory lane. Anyway, I, I tend to get distracted, but the point of that story was that Rush Limbaugh, in the midst of all of that, on that day, said, I hope he fails. And I remember people saying, I can't believe he's done this. I remember people in radio, prominent people in radio, saying, Rush is finished. This was his mistake. He's done. Rush has outlived his usefulness. His time has passed. He's been on nationally since 8990. His, his time has passed. We have a black president. Nobody wants him anymore. He, he, he is, he's from yesterday. I now understand that Rush had been watching what was going on with a far keener eye and a better sense of history than anyone. And he knew that the buildup was not to unite the country. The buildup was not for good public policy that would grow our economy. That the buildup was to give him enough power to smash you, to steal your health care, to regulate your business, to tell you what kind of car you can drive, to transfer wealth to their supporters. And I now realize that he understood what was coming better than anyone else. I wish ill upon the goals and policies of the Democrats. I wish ill upon their hopes and dreams to destroy this country. We're not simply honestly disagreeing anymore. Think about what's happened over the last year. Crowds, mobs of violent, violent, orchestrated, highly sophisticated groups of people destroyed businesses and communities in Minneapolis, uh, St. Louis, Seattle, Portland, Austin. Police officers were beaten, some killed, one on live television. An elderly man still wearing the uniform murdered on. It's been a while since the McRib graced us with its presence nationwide. So for some, that might mean you've never had the opportunity to experience its tender, juicy pork smothered in tangy barbecue sauce on a toasted hoagie bun. But now a trip to McDonald's can change all that. And you can see why we are calling this the most important sandwich of the year. The McRib. At participating McDonald's. No way. Taco Bell's Toasted Cheddar Chalupa is back. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? They, they toasted, toasted six-month-old aged cheddar right onto the, the shell of a chalupa. That's genius. No delicious. No both. And now it comes in a box with a crunchy taco, cinnamon twist, and a medium drink. Whoa. Oh, sorry. This is this is my stop. Oh, uh, cool. We're all thinking it. The $5 Toasted Cheddar Chalupa box is back. Only at Taco Bell. At limited participating U.S. locations for a limited time only. Contact local store for prices, hours, and participation, which vary. Tax extra drinks excludes freezes. Live television. Police departments were told to pull back so these groups could maximize their damage and minimize their exposure. And then the court systems refused in these liberal communities, 
refused to prosecute them for all they had done. This wasn't by accident, and it wasn't spontaneous. And after that, there were changes made to election procedures. Every single change made supposedly to empower the people was actually designed to maximize the opportunity to cheat. And then they did. There are no accidents. I'm now sure of it. There are no accidents, and I will no longer wish them well. From Portland to Albany and all great cities in between. The Michael Berry Show is nationwide. Ooh, ain't got no home. I know place to roam. Ain't got no home. I know place to roam. I'm a lonely boy. I ain't got a home. I got a voice. I love to sing. I sing like a girl. And I sing like a frog. I'm a lonely boy. I ain't got a home. He sings like a girl and a frog. And if you don't believe him, he'll do it. Frogman Henry. Almost exactly 64 years ago today. That's Clarence Frogman Henry. Ain't got no home. And there's a good chance your mamma or papa or both were dancing in bobby socks. Well, maybe not your grandpa, but your grandma. At the sock hop at the high school. And it might not have been with your papa because that might have preceded him. A friend of mine named Chance McLean started a business five years ago. He filmed my dad and made a biography out of it. And my thought was it shouldn't just be for famous people to have a documentary made about your life. And I said, let's start a business. You start it. I'll help you. I'll advise you. I'll send you the people. I'll brag about you on the radio. And since then, he's done hundreds and hundreds of these And he says, you know, I've come to the conclusion, sitting down with a lot of old people, that the secret to success is marry a woman you love dearly, have children, 
raise those children, which will give you great joy. Work hard, save, take some chances, and it ends up okay. But he says, you know, I, I noticed that people, older people did something that later generations don't. They married their high school sweetheart. They had babies early. They got into work. They Most of them served the country. Most of them had to because these, these are folks that, you know, were, were, many of them were drafted. And, um, and they came home very disciplined, focused, stayed married, raised their kids, and ended up very successful. That doesn't necessarily mean very rich, but very successful. I want to make sure we get this story in before the show's over today. Carter Page was an advisor to the Trump campaign. He was spied on by the FBI so that they could get to Trump. So for all these people saying, oh, you know, just let Biden be president. Just let him be president and 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 be nice to him and let's all come together and you know he he let him be president. That's not what they did to Donald Trump. How about a dose of your own medicine? Well, Carter Page hitting them where it hurts. He's filed a seventy-five million dollar lawsuit against the Department of Justice, the FBI, and Jim Comey, who was FBI director at the time, pointing out the unlawful surveillance he was put under during the Russia probe. The suit filed last week says that they violated his constitutional and other legal rights in connection with unlawful surveillance and investigation of him by the United States government. The suit states that the case, quote, is about holding accountable the entities and individuals who are responsible for the most egregious violation and abuse of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, that's FISA, statute since it was enacted over 40 years ago today. You'll recall that the FBI had relied on information from former and disgraced British spy Christopher Steele's since-debunked dossier in an effort to obtain FISA warrants against Carter Page, whom Steele alleged had ties to a Russian influence campaign during the 2016 presidential election. The lawsuit cites four requests the FBI filed to the FISA court in an effort to obtain more information on Page, as part of its crossfire hurricane investigation, a 2019 Justice Department Inspector General report found that the FBI made a number of significant errors in its applications. Page's attorney, Tim Parlatori, says the facts of this case have been relatively well briefed. Between the Horowitz report and various congressional investigations on this subject, there are no bombshell revelations in this lawsuit other than that Carter Page is seeking to be made whole from the individuals who have completely destroyed his life. The lawsuit opens with November testimony from former FBI director, Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, who said during a November hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee that any material misrepresentation or error in a FISA application is unacceptable and admitted that the FBI is responsible for work for the work that went in to the FISA. My friend Ray Sinkowitz and I spend many evenings on the back porch, smoking cigars and solving the world's problems. And he gets very frustrated. And I've told him he has to stop saying this because it depresses me. But he will say in this sort of sad, desperate, helpless, hopeless way, nobody's being held accountable. Hillary wasn't held accountable. Comey wasn't held accountable. 
McCabe, Strazik, Page. None of them. And I fear that that's exactly what's going to happen with these elections. If they can get away with this this time, what will they do the next time? Will anybody ever go to jail? Hunter Biden got away with everything we now know he did. Joe Biden is in hopes of being the president despite all that. Will anybody ever be held accountable? I don't I don't like the answer that comes to mind and I don't like the consequences. This segment exclusively produced by Hawaiian Chad Nakanishi. Aloha, broha, the Michael Berry show. So we conclude the show today with a little fun, or at least a little off-topic, red herring, a slight distraction, a little bit of uh, Twilight Zone mixed with Coast to Coast, mixed with we're just kind of interested in people with different opinions. And that's what brings us to Billy Hollowell. He is a journalist, and he is an author of the recent book, Playing with Fire, a modern investigation into demons, exorcism, and ghosts. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But our booker, Brad Gloria, is constantly mining Twitter for perspectives that are put up by people that are a little bit different, a little bit unique, or in some way or another catch our attention. And he found one about how disagreeing doesn't mean hating. You know, you can disagree with someone without hating. And in fact, the tweet that caught his attention, and he sent it to me, and I said, yeah, let's talk to him, went like this. Someone isn't hateful simply because he or she disagrees with you. Hate is a strong word and perhaps one of the most misused words of our time. I'm passionate about our need to get back to using the right words in their correct context. We keep abusing words to fit our whims. Who is doing that and why, Billy? Oh, boy. You know, I, th- <laughs> I think a lot of us do it. I think we, we tend to see a lot of people right now, I think, on the progressive side of things doing that. And, you know, it's really easy to kind of go after people and say, listen, you know, you don't agree with me, so I'm going to say you're being hateful, right? Because it, it's sort of a way of shutting people down. If you can shut people down and shut them up, then they're not going to bother you anymore. They're not going to come after what you think or believe or who you are. And so I think we, we see a lot of this happening, and it's unfortunate because the reality is most people – don't hate other people on the other side of whatever the issue is, right? You disagree. You have firm disagreement, and you carry on. And and I feel like we used to have this art of disagreement down. And, of course, this has ebbed and flowed, but, but most people could survive and say, hey, you know what, I don't agree with that person, but we can be friends. But a lot of that... A lot of that has been eroded, and I think we're raising a generation of young people who just can't cope with people having different viewpoints, and there's a real danger there. I have two sons, 13 and 14 years old, and we have come to learn over the years that if they don't get activity during the day, they're going to argue more, they're going to be cranky, uh, they're not going to get along with each other or us, they're not going to sleep as well, which is also true of our dog, by the way. And I think there are parallels to that in society. 
if we don't have a means by which you and I or anyone else can disagree and do so in an honest, open manner, if we call everything hate that we don't like, then we don't change people's opinions or their desire to disagree and, and attempt to convince someone, persuade someone. We just make them angry. So that by labeling things as hate and silencing people, in fact, destroying careers over it, I think that what we're doing is actually it's manifesting itself in real hate. And that's far more pernicious. Absolutely. And it's manifesting itself in fear. And here's the, the fascinating thing to me. If your end goal in life is to prevent somebody like Donald Trump from becoming president, and if, if people, many on the left, view him as dangerous, I'm not saying he is, I, this is the view that they have, they don't want to see somebody that, like that be elected. Well, the reality is, when people feel pressed, when they feel unheard, when they feel like, oh my gosh, they keep calling me hateful, they keep calling me a bigot, they keep calling me all these things, I'm going to silently support that person who's uh, you know, open to my free speech. That, that is how this happens. And it's fascinating to have watched it happen in 2016. And so many people who really just wanted to stand by the First Amendment and their rights you know, they, they silently supported Trump. And so if that's your end goal, maybe stop doing the things that make people feel like they have no other option, right? Um, and also have good policies, but that's another discussion. I just think that when you, when you push people up against a wall, there's a real danger to that. But I think it's also just lazy. I mean, it's, it's the ultimate laziness to go after people and to call them hateful when they simply disagree with you. And this happens a lot on the marriage issue. It happens a lot on the gender issues. At the end of the day, these are sincerely held disagreements that people have, and you would do a lot more, to your point, to sit down and try to understand why somebody thinks something different, not because you need to you know, fold <laughs> or because you need to agree with the other side, but because it actually helps refine your own viewpoints when you get a chance to hear what people believe. But the, the tactic they've taken is shut people down, don't let them speak, don't let them communicate, and hope that they'll go away. And people don't go away. They, they look for people who are going to ensure that they have the right to speak out. You're exactly right. The quote is attributed to Voltaire. I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. But it was actually Evelyn Beatrice Hall who wrote it about Voltaire that that was a description of, of his positions. But I guess it doesn't matter because the point is that there was a time where we defended to the death someone's right to say that with which we disagree. I would be remiss if I didn't spend at least three minutes with you, Billy, on this book, Playing with Fire, A Modern Investigation into Demons, Exorcisms, and Ghosts. You have three minutes to tell me what in the heck you found out and why you wrote this. And I'm not even going to interrupt you. Go. You had told me like a year and a half ago, two years ago, hey, you're going to write a book about demons. You know, from a journalistic Christian perspective, I would have probably laughed at you. Uh, but, I, but I have a history of taking on tough issues. And I'm a lifelong Christian, so this stuff is not foreign to me, the, this topic of possession and demons. But um, it really, there's so many reasons why I dove into it. The real reason really was that I felt like I was supposed to do it. I mean, this was, I was looking for a book project. I was working on um, politics, looking to do something political. And this idea has in, you know, consistently come in front of me when I worked at The Blaze as a journalist, when I worked at Faithwire, many stories would come across my desk of people who had claimed to have these sorts of experiences. And it's a weird topic. I know a lot of people don't, they don't believe that it's true or they're really uncertain. They don't really know how to approach it. And so I wanted to write a book that would really help people understand through a Christian lens, okay, what are demons? What does the Bible tell us? What is evil? Right? I mean, even that basic question, like who is Satan? What is evil? How does it manifest itself? And so the investigation that I go in and playing with fire is really looking at people's stories. And 
exploring, okay, you're telling me you've gone through this thing. Let's look at it. Let's talk to witnesses. Let's talk to those who have been attached to the story in some way. Uh, one of the stories I tell in the book is The Exorcist, the real-life story at the center of the film and the book. A lot of people don't realize it was based on a little boy's story, <clears throat> and um, it's really interesting. So I go into that. I talk about Ouija boards. I go into scripture, and I have to tell you, what was really fascinating to me was the peace that writing this book actually brought, which I know sounds strange into my own life. Just as a Christian, you know, I think understanding evil is a really important thing. We're watching evil manifest itself all over the world uh, right now, particularly even in, in this country, the way that people are behaving, the things that are happening. And so then connecting that, okay, is there something going on that we can understand through a Christian lens? Um, but this is a book for anybody. I mean, at the end of the day, my my goal was to look at everything, provide the evidence, and let people make a decision for themselves, right? Do you believe this stuff is real, and do you believe these people's stories that I'm telling, and there's a few really interesting stories in the book, are true? Have you been on? Have you been invited on Coast to Coast or not? <laughs> I have not. I would love but to. But you're going to be. I don't know. I I'm going to pass that me. along to their folks because because <laughs> that's a that's a division of of the the company that I work for by day. I'm going to pass it along. The book is Playing with Fire: A Modern Investigation into Demons, Exorcism, and Ghosts. He's Billy Holloway. You're a great guest. Come back and see us, Billy. Thanks for having me. All right, buddy. Welcome to Office Hours, a podcast presented by College Fashionista. It's your host, Amy Levin Klein here. Today's guest is former art major and founder of Tapping Collective, Chelsea Neiman Nix. Tapping Collective is an online art gallery that is geared towards making art accessible to aspiring collectors and emerging artists. Tapping Collective has grown tremendously since I first met Chelsea and it is my honor for her to share with you valuable business advice and how she got her start back in college. Chelsea, okay, so happy to be talking to you. It's been so long since we've connected and I have been following everything you've been doing and I'm, I feel like I'm such a proud older sister of, of all the success that you've had. Thank you. I know. It's such a pleasure to be here. So let's go back to your early days. Where are you originally from and where did you go to college? Sure. I'm from Los Angeles, born and raised. And then um, I wanted the the full college experience. So I chose to go to Michigan, U of M. I just went to Michigan last year for my first time which is crazy because, you know, I'm from Chicago and I went to Indiana and I'm obsessed with Michigan. I was so blown away by (laughs) the students, the school. I just like the whole experience was amazing. Did you also enjoy your time there? Oh, my God. Like best four years of my life. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, it was funny because when I was choosing which school to go to, everybody I spoke to that went to Michigan was like so diehard. They were so obsessed. And it was one of the reasons that, you know, as I was choosing, I chose to go to Michigan. You know, the football, the the Greek life. But then I also wanted the art school experience. So it was a good art program at like a well-rounded school. So it 
it hit checked all the boxes for me. And did you know going into Michigan that you wanted to pursue a career in the art industry? Yes, I actually applied as an art major. Oh, okay, so right from the beginning. Mm-hmm, yeah. I was looking for art schools. So I had done a program at RISD and realized that a proper art school was not the right fit for me. I wanted something that was a little bit more, like, I'm not going to say uh, mainstream or had all the different elements. So I wanted to find an art school at a liberal arts college. And do you feel like your education at Michigan has impacted what you're doing now? Definitely. Uh, Tappan is actually named after the Fine Art Library at Michigan. No way. I don't think I ever knew that. Okay, so you definitely gained a lot of inspiration during your college days. Absolutely, yeah. How did you start Tappan Collective? And, um, you know, talk us through that journey a little bit. Sure. So I, like I mentioned, went to the art school in Michigan and went after my BFA. I wanted to be a full-time artist after I graduated. And art school is great and it teaches you um, a lot about yourself and your practice, but not as many practical skills as you need to, to build your career. So I graduate and you know, I'm selling some paintings and I'm in a couple shows with friends and things are moving along, but it just doesn't feel sustainable. It doesn't feel like something that I was going to bet my life on. So I started working for an interior designer and we started selling a lot of my paintings to our clients because at the time there was nowhere where you could find original work that was by an emerging artist um, at an affordable price point. So you either had to go to a gallery and you know have a relationship with the gallery and spend a ton of money, or you could source from the gallery or you know something that's not that that's a little bit more mass produced. At the same time, my co-founder was working in a gallery, and she had friends who were going into iBanking and you know wanted to buy work and had the money to spend, but they they couldn't just because the gallery wouldn't sell it to them or, you know, whatever. And so we came together and we said, well, it seems like there's a lot of issues in this space. There's a lot of dead ends. For the artist, it's hard to sell their work. For a collector, it's hard to acquire the work. Um, there has to be something that we can do to solve this problem. And the art world was one of the last industries to go onto the internet. They traditionally didn't believe that art would ever go online. Why do you feel like that was the mindset? There's a level of opacity in the art world and just the nature of the internet. It just provides so much transparency and that's not something that's regularly embraced. You know, and then also there's the argument that people want to see the work in person. They have to, yeah, they have to see it in person if they're going to spend that much on work. And, you know, we were young and optimistic and we thought, well, if people didn't have to try on a dress or, you know, clothing, then why would they need to see, 
something that's two dimensional in person. It's not like it's going to look different in once it arrives. Yeah. All that being said, we were iterating on different ideas and we came up with the idea of tap in and we started with a really simple proof of concept. So we got my friends that had graduated art school, uh, her friends that had graduated art school and just convinced them to let us put their work online. So would people buy artwork online was the question. And um, they did. And, and so five, six years later, here we are still selling artwork online. I love it. I love your story. And I remember the first site and you know, it's such a, a no, 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 I do in a good way. Listen, I remember the first college fashionista site and I cringe. So I'm sure you feel the same way when you think about your first site. It's like scary that you let it get out there, but like, you know, it got you to where you are. But what I think is so great about your brand is that I, you know, don't know a ton about the art world. And I think it's so intimidating, but I, I love art and I like, you know, I like nice things. Um, and I feel like you guys make it just like more inclusive um, and more approachable for people who aren't art novice and wouldn't go into a gallery. And um, I think it's it's really cool. You definitely have filled a space that you know, needed to be filled. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, that's a big part of why we do what we do. We just feel like there shouldn't be such a barrier to entry and that everybody should be able to have quality work, quality artwork at any price point. So being able to make it approachable, make it friendly, make it educational, that's, you know, what we're excited about doing for the space. And has it been cool to watch a lot of the young artists and emerging artists that you guys have discovered grow over the years? Yeah, absolutely. We've had a ton who we call alumni have graduated. We have a ton that have stayed with us and we're, you know, working together. And it's super rewarding for us because when you buy a piece of work on Tappan, you're really changing the lives or the life of the artist that you're acquiring that you're collecting and then being able to watch their stories online or through our social, being able to follow their journey um, and continue to collect their work. That's, that's pretty cool. No, absolutely. How has tapping grown over the years since you started it and what have been the biggest challenges that you've faced? Sure. So when we started, we, we started with, limited edition work. So the model was that an artist would send us a file and we would print it and frame it and ship it for them. And and that was it. But what we found was that people were really responding to a small amount of our inventory that was like original paintings. So we started to, you know, we looked to our artists to provide us more of their original work, some more paintings and drawings and one of a kind. And so we have evolved to offer a lot of of that. But the problem on a, the business end is that it's an inventory issue. So we are constantly looking for more work that we can show because 
the amount of effort we put into one painting that can only sell one time, it's harder than, you know, like a bag that you can sell a million times. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. So what's the solution to that? Or it's an ongoing kind of how do you work through a challenge like that? It's definitely an ongoing problem or something that we're working on. And we just, we work closely with our artists to make sure that we're able to provide what we think is both strong work and also, you know, what people are looking to to acquire. Like your best quality is your worst quality. It's, totally. it's incredible to have a one-of-a-kind painting, but from a business perspective, it's it's really hard to only have, you know, one to sell. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk about mm-hmm. kind of students' lives. Our best performing content is always dorm and um, art decor type of content. Students love it and, you know, are really putting a lot of attention to detail into it. What advice do you have okay. for college students as they're starting to, you know, look at art and make investments? Um, what's kind of like a good starting point for them? There's a couple of things that I think are important. One knowing that you can buy incredible work at any price point. So don't feel like just because, you know, I don't have this crazy budget that I can't have something that's really unique and tasteful and expressive of your own you know, personality. When we think about collecting, it's important to collect with your eyes and not your ears. So it's kind of the equivalent of somebody who's in fashion, you know, has style versus somebody who's just following fashion trends, figuring out who you are and what you like and going after that as opposed to buying what you think you should be buying. Is that? Yeah, that's really good advice. Well, I think about it. I, I think about it with myself at this point, you know, of my life as I look at art, I very much buy with my eyes and I like don't care about the price. Like, I like that that's your perspective and approach, um, especially for college students, because they obviously don't have a budget to buy a $10,000 piece of art, but like they still want something cool that looks great. And I think that also when you're collecting, a collection over time becomes like a time capsule of who you are or who you have been and all of those different times of your life. So I think it's important to feel comfortable investing in the pieces that you're drawn to, but knowing that like looking back, it's going to be a a memory or it's going to be something of that time. Does that make sense? Yeah. Is there a particular piece of art or something that you look back at and you're like, I have a memory from this period of my life because of that piece of art? Yeah, so I was in art school, right? So we have something that artists love to do is trade work or, you know, collect your friend's work. And I have a couple pieces of, of friends of mine who, you know, that I'll always cherish. That's cool. That's really great. Yeah. I know through the years you guys have partnered with a ton of different brands on collections, which I think is, you know, just a, a really cool factor of your business. What has been your favorite brand partnership that you've worked on? Ooh, that's a tough question. <laughs> well, most recently we did 
a collaboration with Vince that I thought was really powerful because what we did there was they had their founders come back and they wanted to tell a story of what their founders were inspired by. And Vince is inspired by art, design, and architecture. So we were able to to select or bring to the table three artists that represented the Vince aesthetic or the Vince DNA, and they created new works, exclusive works, especially for Vince. That was that was then we were able to show in New York and LA. How cool is that? Yeah, we ended up rolling it out um, with a couple other locations and artists and. Hawaii and Dubai and it was it was wow. very cool mm-hmm. being able to to serve Vince in that way was awesome and then what is cool and what we love about the brand partnerships is that it continues on with our mission which is to give artists a platform that they wouldn't have otherwise had so somebody who's going into Vince and you know, is aesthetically minded or, or is looking for quality, they go in and they find, they just get to discover an artist, an emerging artist who would have never had that opportunity is very cool. Yeah, it's a nice, like, coming together of kind of two brands and businesses that share similarities. Yeah. I really right. like that. I really like that you guys did that. So you've been yeah. running your cool. business now for several years. What continues to motivate mm-hmm. you to drive the brand forward? The artist, for sure. I mean, I am one, so I, I can definitely relate or identify. But being able to support their careers and allow somebody who wouldn't have otherwise been able to have a full-time studio practice, for them to to be able to do that is, is huge. So on one end, we're changing the lives of, of the artists and making it possible for them to pursue their career. And then, you know, while also delivering a unique quality item to a collector or somebody who would want to collect and didn't feel like they could, that's that's win-win. For sure. I need to see your work. I don't think I've ever seen it before. (laughs) Where can I see it or where can I get it? (laughs) Nowhere. Nowhere, nowhere. (laughs) No, I'm going to make you make me a piece. (laughs) That's amazing. No, I, I'm not good enough to be on tap. So. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm sure you are. Well, I need to follow up on that and definitely see some of your work. If you could go back to your college self on you know, graduation day at University of Michigan, what advice would you give yourself? Ooh. On graduation day, I would say to stay true, to stay true to yourself, to just continue like things work out, you never know which way or why things unfold the way they do. But if you're staying true to yourself, it will be for the best. And things will, will fall yeah. together. I like it. Yeah, yeah. Well, Chelsea, I, I think, life, think you have it going on. Thank you. Thank you, as do you. Yeah, it's been I've I've really enjoyed watching everything with Tappen and I own a bunch of Tappen pieces, so um we'll continue to be big fans. 
And I appreciate you taking the time. And um, I know all of the Michigan listeners will love to hear someone from their alma mater. And I agree with you. Like the allegiance people from University of Michigan have is unlike I've seen at any other school. It's pretty cool. (laughs) It's like diehard. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Chelsea, for joining Office Hours and sharing your story of building Tapping Collective. Thanks to you, the listener, for tuning in, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of 2018. We'll see you in 2019. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode. 